Welcome to Commune. This is Jeff Krasnow. Our mission is to spread the ideas and practices of the world's greatest teachers. We do that through online courses, a weekly newsletter, and this podcast. On the show, I excavate perennial spiritual questions like what is consciousness? What is the nature of reality? How do we live with purpose? Reality is infinite. We experience a narrow bandwidth of it unless we transcend our senses through meditation. We delve into practices and modalities that can heal trauma and help us thrive. Mastering the art and the science of forgiveness is necessary to move through life. A miracle is a shift in perception from fear to love. We explore the spiritual traditions that help us acknowledge that we are all connected by a power greater than us. We are all indeed individuals, yet we need to find collective and communal solutions. We build a sturdy bridge between personal wellness and societal well-being. It's only when you get people who are pursuing their dreams, living their truth, and feeling good that we can actually move the needle of society forward. To learn about our courses, our community, and everything we do, visit us at onecommune.com. Okay, today on the podcast, I welcome back one of my all-time favorite guests, Ara Katz. Ara is the co-founder of a fascinating company called Seed, a microbial sciences company pioneering applications of microbes to improve human and planetary health. Their consumer innovations division develops clinically studied probiotics. They produce a best-in-class, stringently researched, broad-spectrum, 24-strain probiotic, and have recently launched a pediatric daily symbiotic for kids ages 3 to 17. Aseed is also a research company and works in partnership with leading scientists, the top academic institutions, and physicians to advance breakthrough academic discoveries in microbial science. It is just fascinating to think about how these ancient prokaryotes with whom we co-evolved may hold the solutions to many of our most prescient societal problems. We'll get into that. Seed also happens to be the most beautifully designed brand I've experienced in a long, long time. And this is in large part due to Ara's commitment to make science more accessible. Ara is also the author of the recently published book titled A Kid's Book About Your Microbiome. Now, in our conversation, Ara and I discuss the history of our human understanding of disease and its relationship to bacteria. We explore the 20th century war waged on microbial life and how the new science of the microbiome is changing our rapport with bacteria. We cover some basic microbiome 101 and Ara busts some of the more popular myths about probiotics, like can you really have a probiotic potato chip? We explore short-chain fatty acids and what benefits they confer to their host across digestion, immunity, cognition, gene expression, and hormone production. We talk about when the human microbiome is seeded. We discuss bacteria and pregnancy and the importance of breastfeeding. We talk about the bees and what their special extinction would mean. Do bees have microbiome? Well, 
Ara will answer that question and many others as we dive deep into the colon of this fascinating topic. I could literally speak with Ara for days. She is hands down one of the smartest people I have ever met. And as my wife would say, she suffers no fools. She is adamant about evidence-based science. So let's get into it. It's my great pleasure to present to you, Ara Katz. We're in the river together. Um, good to be with you. Thanks for coming to our little commune up in the mountains. Thank you for having me. I always say, again. <laughs> yeah, I always say, um, when you feel like you're lost, that's when you're almost here. So I don't know if you felt like you were lost on the way up here, but I'm wasted. Oh, good. <laughs> and by transference, I did. <laughs> So um, you hold the dubious honor of being my wife's favorite interview. Wow. And my wife does not suffer fools. <laughs> I, I noticed that day I met her on, on, on Zoom. I had a feeling she does not. That's an amazing honor. Well, you have, you have the honor, and I say this all the time to people, when we met during COVID, well, mm -hmm. during COVID still is here, but um, you know, at the height of kind of lockdown, it is it truly and I'm not saying that just because I'm here, really my most memorable and favorite podcast I ever did. So, oh, Which is yeah. why I wanted to take the extra time and prepare properly for this. <laughs> I appreciate that because you are my go-to for stringent science. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm going to, I'll probably pepper you um, with some true-false to the degree that there are true-falses out there because there's mostly yes. probably nuance. Mm -hmm. um, but there are a lot of claims that get thrown around loosely in the world of the microbiome and probiotics, et cetera. And, um, and some of those claims are very well-intentioned and super exciting. And yeah. I've probably been guilty of mm -hmm. a claim or two, um, mostly just because I'm playing catch up. Uh, you know, I'm not a doctor um, or a gastroenterologist. Uh, I'm just reading uh, as much as I possibly can with great curiosity. And um, this is this field that you've gone into is, I think one of the reasons why it's so exciting is that it provides so much agency for people, yes, including myself, because uh, I suffered from, I guess, what you might call dysbiosis. And it had all sorts of really negative um, knock-on impacts in my life. Mm -hmm. And it took me a long time to literally get my act together. And part of getting that act together was learning about what you do mm -hmm. and then being able to apply science and more specifically mechanism mm -hmm. to my own life. So I'm grateful um, for that. And, uh, and I loved that interview too. And in prepping for this one, I went back to that one and I was like, oh yeah, that was good. <laughs> um, so I'd love to start, you know, with some history of uh, our human relationship mm -hmm. with bacteria um, because we didn't know about microbes forever. Mm -hmm. And particularly as it pertains to our understanding of disease uh, I think I uh, I think back 
to the Black Death, for example. And the prevailing uh, theory at that juncture was this notion of miasma theory, that yes. there was this kind of pestilence in the air. And I think there was... An no noxious air. Noxious air. Yes. I think there was an element of the stars or the planets aligning too. But, yes. um, but uh, we progressed significantly mm -hmm. since that point and, um, and discovered uh, microbes. And mm -hmm. at this point, I think it would be more appropriate to pass the mic because yes. I think it would really be helpful to set the table to get a little bit of our background of our tawdry and ambiguous mm -hmm. relationship Absolutely. with the microbes. Well, you know, it's interesting that you said it's, it's interesting. I've been listening to you when you when you said um, we didn't know a lot about them. You know, one of the things I think that's come out of the last decade and like remembering our place as humans, but also our place as like the Western <laughs> narcissism that like our mm -hmm. lens is the lens. One of the interesting things I learned recently is that um, even the Lakota um, have a word for uh, microbes um, because there are a lot of cultures around the world um, that always understood, for example, the Lakota use uh, this word for um, what, they, what, what translates to little monsters and why, mm -hmm. how they had known for so long to never drink from still water as an example. Really? Of course, that's where pathogen, you know, sure. <laughs> microbes can proliferate. There's not a lot of movement. Temperatures can be optimal. The acid conditions can be optimal. So one of the things I always try to remind myself when I talk about these things is that, you know, it's like history is written by the victors. Yeah. And in sure. science, history was written by a lot of white guys. Um, and, and so I, I think that there's a lot of evidence to suggest that, you know, other cultures certainly had started to understand this otherness um, in, uh, in different ways. Hmm. Um, even prior to uh, the white guys, <laughs> yeah, maybe even uh, TCM, to yeah, some degree. absolutely, absolutely, yeah. and so um, and and th in different language, different ways of thinking about mm -hmm. it. But I do, um, I do have to believe that you know the the notion that you know Ayurvedic frameworks were looking already at these types of digestion um, as a means to understand the way that your body processes, like illness, pathology, good, you know, food, et cetera, other information. Um, and then TCM, of course, like looking at your tongue, for example, where mm -hmm. we know now that it's for, for my world, it's called the oral microbiome yeah. uh, and one of the niches of the oral microbiome. But of course, in TCM, the first thing one of some of those practitioners will do is look at your tongue. So I think that just before I get into like the, hit, the, the yeah. white guy history <laughs> of microbes, uh, which has a very black and white and othering, othering way of looking at um, science, health in our bodies, it's just important to recognize that my guess is that though not well documented, there were a lot of cultures um, and, and frameworks and um, ways of thinking about the body, health, the environment, where they probably already knew um, mm -hmm. of some of these uh, other, other organisms yeah. um, that were not humorous or simple organisms. So, but but in terms of just the the way that this kind of like antibacterial or antimicrobial world came about was... Definitely from, and, you know, I think until recently, we never really experienced this, but, you know, throughout history, we now die of non-communicable diseases more than anything else. So we're used to a world where heart disease, type 2 diabetes, um, you know, these big, these conditions that you can't catch, 
Right. Um, unless, of course, you think <laughs> poor food systems and you think have, are contagious, which well, that's a whole other podcast. Yeah, we could, we could um, make an argument. There. But for the most part, you're, you're absolutely right. It's certainly the, you know, the Black Plague and the notion of miasma and like noxious air, that something's in the air, which, by the way, probably, and we know this from <laughs> molecules and the way that uh, particles and the way that even just COVID hung in the air and the way that some of those things worked absolutely was probably partially true. But you know, when germ theory came about and Louis Pasteur and they started to really understand the con connectivity between very specific microbes or germs and their relationship to pathogens, you have to remember it was at a time where they weren't thinking about like the soil losing nutrient density, you know, so they were only thinking, wow, thousands of people, millions of people are dying from these things. So how could they think that there's, well, there must be good ones because that that was obviously the construct that was, you know, happening and what they were able to correlate it to. And so Louis Pasteur, which of course led to pasteurization and um, some really important discoveries, I think started this idea that these things that you can't see that he was able to correlate with the specific diseases was the cause of them. And of course, in history, when you think something's the cause of something, you immediately, <laughs> there's an assumption that there, whether there was no question and not a lot of questions asked as to whether or not there were good ones, it was just, well, now how do we eradicate them? Um, and, and you have to remember, like, the world you're in, right, which is othering was part of the yeah. way that you derived yeah. power. <laughs> yeah, well, certainly the anthropocentric view of the world. We went out and killed all of the things that were bigger than us. That's right. <laughs> And we ran out of those or that predators. Or that looked different or yeah. that we needed to exert power over. And then what yep. was left? Well, these things that we couldn't see, yes. these insidious <laughs> yes. little... But that were killing yeah. people, you know, in, in some really bad, I mean, obviously that we know about the big ones, but sure. there are all kinds of, and, you know, and it was at a time sanitation isn't, wasn't what it is, hygiene isn't what it is now, um, water systems, you know, et cetera, were of course very different. And so, um, and I think that that really led to, you know, starting in like the uh, like mid to late, you know, 19th century, and then going into the 1900s, like an entire wave of, um, you know, Joseph Lister, which of course led to like Listerine right. and, yes. you know, this notion that, and, and you have to remember there's religious, there's some religious and puritanical ideals in here too, which is cleansing one, it's getting rid of the bad, right? And so these led to this kind of yeah. obsession with hygiene and this notion that, that these things were dirty um, and that they caused disease. And of course that led to many really important things like our... Um, sanitation systems, sure. uh, which did reduce, reduce disease, um, washing hands after surgery or before surgery, which led to the saving so many lives, yeah. led to really important things like antibiotics, which in the right moments, not, not the 251 million prescriptions written in the United <laughs> States every year necessarily, um, but in many instances, like they are some, one of the most important inventions we've ever had. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, I read some statistics about World War II yeah. that were just astounding. <laughs> actually read something that might be apocryphal, but that mm -hmm. the United States uh, had antibiotics to administer in mm -hmm. during World War II and Nazi Germany didn't. Interesting. And this was uh, some sort of uh, delineation there between how we could save our soldiers. But I don't know if that's true. But I, it certainly it fits the right time frame. Well, we've certainly made up for it now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it <laughs> has become you know, proliferated as part of a whole paradigm, a whole approach to 
beyond human physiology, yes. right? So Absolutely. it's how we treat soil, etc. Absolutely. I think it led, you know, and I think what it did, you know, look, fear is, and I think we only have to look to the last couple of years to find, to see how it impacts our world at scale and is currently um, when you look around the world. But um, fear is very powerful and it, and it creates irrational um, spectrums that tends to be very like polarizing. And we certainly as a culture went in the direction of kill them all. Um, and I think we've done that in a lot of areas. And of course, we've done, we've done the same thing with, and we're also very short-sighted as a species, right? We're very, um, one of my favorite, our favorite scientists, uh, George Church, who's um, runs the Beeson Institute at Harvard, who's known for, among many other crazy things, wanting to bring back the woolly mammoth, um, introduce <laughs> the DNA into the East Asiatic uh, elephant to uh, be able to begin punching holes in the permafrost <laughs> to be able to reverse climate change. So he's an amazing thinker. But he just says, you know, as a species, we just can't plan ahead. Yeah. Which is absolutely not, not the way that we work. And so, of course, that yeah. eradicating all the bad led to you know, yeah. led to pesticides. I mean, it's, just, it's, right. it's well, the same we thing. We don't think of planning ahead as practical, which is strange. We think yes. of like business people yes. as very practical. That's right. But, but even they're business, looking like, like three, three to five, to five years. Yeah. <laughs> right? Three to five years, yeah, exactly. Um, and um, yeah, I mean, I think of like the polio virus, for mm -hmm. example, and the national fervor That's right. to eradicate the polio virus and the March of Dimes. And, you know, I think there was either 1.2 or 1.8 million children, mm -hmm. uh, many of whom were in the control group, but basically whose parents mm -hmm. just signed them up for the polio vaccine trials. Right. And you're like, what? No. You know? And so, um, so this, uh, this commitment to excoriate and eviscerate microbes mm -hmm. um, had some positive impact. Mm -hmm. So we did a pretty decent job the last couple of years notwithstanding yes. of eliminating mm -hmm. infectious disease but we traded that in for something uh, uh, yes and and i think that's just because to your point earlier like there was no acknowledgement of nuance hmm. and there wasn't really enough curiosity to think about well what if there's good ones that we actually like really need to be fair um we didn't have a lot of the technologies to know that um, in some cases, so it would have taken, although there are scientists, you know, and this is why I say it's important to know who, who the history is coming from. You know, Carl Sagan's first wife, who's one of my personal heroes, Lynn Margolis, who people don't hear enough about, I highly suggest you read everything she's ever written and done. She posthumously, and, and should have won probably the Nobel Prize during her lifetime, posthumously um, was recognized for the endosymbiosis theory, which is actually the theory of how complex life started. Um, which is the notion that, you know, archaea ate a bacteria or <laughs> bacteria ate archaea, which that's a still chicken, yeah, right, <laughs> chicken egg yeah. conversation in, um, in science. But um, she was able to identify that like mitochondria, the structure of simple cells resembled enough. Wait, that's um, the her theory. Yeah. Get mm -hmm. out of here. Yeah. That's so, incredible. And she was never recognized for it. And she died um, of cancer fairly early. Uh, of course, he gets lots of credit for things, which he should, <laughs> but she was definitely at a time where women uh, in science and STEM were just not recognized. And so there's a lot of things I think uh, may have been known that are being known now and kind of claimed um, 
but uh, but but to to give full credit from a scientific perspective, I mean, a lot of these things could not have been known in the way they are today. Um, and one of the things I love, there's a there's a book I was I was going to bring you a book. I'm there's a book I'm gonna I'm gonna um, bring to you that I gift to everybody. I I think I've bought every vintage copy that exists <laughs> in the world. Um, but uh, Horace Freeland Johnson, who is or Judson, who is a science communicator and translator put together this like kind of beautiful book. And one of the things it says about science is that, you know, people don't acknowledge, and of course this happened during COVID, because it's a really hard nuanced thing to understand, is that, you know, there's scaffolding that happens in the field like this, right? Mm -hmm. It's like the people who are under like creating like calculations for physics, they weren't trying to go to the moon. They were just calculating and <laughs> making right. calculations that you yeah. needed then years, you know, decades later to go to the moon. And so, you know, it wasn't until the human genome project that we had like 16S sequencing, for example, shotgun sequencing, where then like now then you could start characterizing the D DNA, then you could start characterizing the DNA, not just of human cells, but of bacterial cells, you know? And so, you know, these things had to kind of progress along with also what we could know. Um, and so, you know, in some cases it's easy to look back and say like, how could they, everyone just wanted to kill everything. And that was certainly, I think there's a lot of religious societal reasons why it contributed fear what happens at scale and trying yeah. to communicate to people at, at any level, um, you know, as we've seen in the last couple of years, like in mass is really challenging, let alone the entire world. But you also have to recognize that like sometimes science can't know something if you don't even have a tool, you know, sometimes to know it. Um, and so I think that that's part of what has really accelerated the field over the last, you know, over maybe over a decade now, 10 to 15 years. The Human Genome Project is an interesting um, inflection point, maybe, because so we had Darwin and then mm -hmm. we kind of had the Watson and Crick paradigm of the mm -hmm. world in the early 50s. And we put a lot of stock in human health being centered around the human cell. Yeah. And then all of a sudden we could sequence the human genome. And maybe can you pull on that thread a little bit, like what happened? Oh, sure. I mean, it wasn't, you know, the Human Genome Project wasn't looking at microbes necessarily, but what it did was allow us to get the technology and the kind of sequencing technology so that you could start to understand like, well, when you're starting to look now at all the other constituents of the yeah. human body, you know, and then you had like under the Obama administration, the Human Microbiome Project, which used that technology and, tr and really, and it was, I think, one of the largest initiatives ever um, done, which is $173 million, which for the United States doing, you know, at NIH level is like a big, big um, grant. Um, and that was really to characterize um, the human microbiome and say, and try and answer the question, like, what is a healthy microbiome? Mm. Yeah, well, I, I bring up the, or you brought up the Human Genome Project, but I comment on it because the result was somewhat surprising. I think we, we had a preconception of yes. humans being a little bit more sophisticated than we yes. are. Yes, correct. Um, you mean in terms of our genomic redundancy with like bananas? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I, I keep seeing the, the number being modified, but somewhere around 20,000 genes mm -hmm. or something. Yes. And so then the question was, well, how are we so complex or how do we make, how, how does our DNA code for as many proteins mm -hmm as it needs to yes. with only 20,000 genes. And I think, uh, and this stumped a lot of scientists for a while, but potentially, and this is actually my guess, but mm -hmm. my guess is that that opened some of the doorway yes. to 
the study of microbes again. And and yeah. and others and and certainly on also how it opened the doorway for how that could be um engineered or modified. Mm. Right, yeah. which is kind of what's happening now. Where I think a lot of the like with CRISPR and CRISPR, a lot of the new yeah. tech new word, and then of course the CRISPR is kind of even old, not old news, but there's so many more CRISPRs now, and you know what we're yeah. gonna do, what we're going to do with that. But you know the hard thing, you know, it, it there's a, a stat that gets thrown around in microbiome a lot because you know microbes. I think at one of the last counts, expressed you know over 300 times the amount of genes than our human cells. Right. Um, but that gets thrown around, you know, and people are like, "See, it's even more important." And you're like, "Yeah." <laughs> <laughs> my my co-founder says I'd still trade some of those human genes. I, I'd, I'd trade a bunch of those microbial genes in for some right. of the human. They do some pretty important coding. So, <laughs> you know, so it's not a one-to-one or apples to apples, but um, it is interesting to think about that from a cell count perspective, at least as of the last Weissman Institute um, paper that, that kind of approximated in the human body um, that human and microbial cells were about 50-50, which is different than the 10-to-1 that got, I think, thrown around a lot prior to that, but you know, that that's <laughs> unto itself, the idea that you're by 50% of your body is not, is our, our cell, cellularly or is not human. Right. And that would exclude even the archaea bacteria, mm -hmm. mitochondria yeah. dilemma. Yeah. Um, <laughs> right. Exactly. But, um, and so I've seen 38 trillion. That's the number mm -hmm. I see popping that's probably around. The, that's probably the number that, that's the count that we, a lot of, um, it's a citation that we use for number of bacteria. Okay. Um, but it's it there had you know it's it the the what we the the one that we use the most right now is about that that fifty fifty um, bacteria obviously constituting like large majority sure. of the the microbial population but then of course there's fungi and you know viruses and there's the virome and yeah. <laughs> there's the metabolome which is a whole other thing which is not the microbes but what they're making which is probably where the field is headed huh so they have their own classification now they do okay yes. all right we'll get there yes. um so about 70 trillion give or take sure. cells in the human body <laughs> about if some 50 50 relationship mm -hmm. or proportion between human cells and and microbial cells, mm -hmm. and uh, where are most of them? Well, the 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 Human Microbiome Project estimated that well, f the majority of them, and probably why the field started where it did, and why a lot of people kind of conflate the word microbiome with like the gut microbiome or gut health or you know any any of the any number of the um, marketing uh, alliterations of mm -hmm. microbiome. Um, are primarily in the gut, in the GI, in the GI tract, um, and that is where there's the largest density of them. Um, the Human Microbiome Project put that somewhere between 500 and 1,000 species. We've seen bigger numbers than that. Mm -hmm. um, after that, the oral microbiome is the most diverse, not necessarily the, the most microbes, but the most diverse, so about 700 species in the oral microbiome, each with mm -hmm. like very specific niches. So. The tongue has a different microbiome than like the cheeks. The saliva has its own microbiome. So, but as a whole, the oral microbiome is about 700. And then you have in women, the vaginal microbiome, the, the genital microbiome. Um, there's uh, the skin microbiome, um, which again is not a lot uh, and actually is less and less diverse than the gut and the mouth. Um, and then, you know, of course, there's these smaller niches like the optical microbiome. 
the nasal microbiome, which mm-hmm. I think we kind of got got some wind of during co- you know COVID to understand that of course microbes interact with your nasal passage. But of course, there was a lot of talk about whether or not the nasal microbiome um, predisposed you to long COVID, to susceptibility even contracting COVID, because they would see roommates. Um, that mm-hmm. would not, the other one wouldn't get COVID and looking at the nasal microbiome as a potential or any of the airway microbiomes as a potential, um, you know, uh, predisposition to contracting or protecting against. So there's kind of, and then of course there's the scalp microbiome. And so really like anywhere where your body, um, touches an external surface or there's information coming in there's usually microbes <laughs> and then some sort of niche, the axillary microbiome, which is your underarm, your armpit, for example. Right. Um, and then even within on your skin, the microbiome of your face will have a different um, composition than the microbiome of the chest or the back, for example, right. which is why you'll see like um, specific conditions like specific acnes or whatever like only happen in certain areas, of course, because of some of the environmental conditions of those. But you can imagine from an evolutionary perspective, some... Uh, microbes evolved to be on, <laughs> yeah. on on that part of the body. Um, and so dysbiosis in that part of the body would be very different than like the palms of your hands where actually you, it's not a very substantial microbiome. Right. I think I read an article in the New York Times about the armpit microbiome. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think the the claim was that sweat or perspiration mm-hmm. doesn't actually have an odor in and of itself. Mm-hmm. But when That's you right. sweat in your mm-hmm. armpit, it is actually being essentially metabolized yes. by the microbiome. And that's actually right. producing a particular kind of odor yes. um, such that one, that our attraction mm-hmm. to another mate, you know, and I've done it from mm-hmm. time to time in the laundry room, yes. picked up my wife's <laughs> like yoga shirt and been like, oh, I still love her. <laughs> Amazing. <That's so laughs> um, that our microbiome mm-hmm. might be uh, fixing the game a little mm-hmm. bit in terms of our who might be the best mate yes. mm-hmm. based on the attraction of that odor. So yes. Well, they're, they're the, what they produce are called VOCs, volatile organic compounds. Mm-hmm. And those are produced in other parts of the body beyond the, um, beyond the, uh, the armpit. Um, that is what it contributes to halitosis. So it cre- yeah. creates the same thing, microbial um, you know, uh, metab- metabolites that are coming from microbial activity that create halitosis. Then there's really interesting ones that even just come off the feet, um, such that, I mean, yours is a sexier example, <laughs> but just to, just to show you that they can train, they have trained dogs to be able to smell the volatile organic compounds and be able to identify uh, children with malaria, for example. Wow. So thinking mm. about VOCs, um, n- n- yes, as an attraction, <laughs> and certainly yeah. more fun to talk about when it comes to love. Well, um, I might have a foot fetish. Yes, you don't know <laughs> about <laughs> totally. It. <laughs> but also, if you think about it as a diagnostic too, um, yeah. people say cancer have like I remember my my mom uh, was had pancreatic cancer. You could smell it. Yeah. You know, and so it's really interesting to think about when there's dysbiosis. So when there's something disturbed in a specific niche or microbiome. Um, how that could be producing volatile organic compounds that create smells that actually could lead to interesting diagnostics too, which is kind of interesting to think about. And that was what Mm. I was saying. Like a lot of the field is also moving towards not just like which microbes are there, um, but what is their function? What are they doing? What are they making? What are they creating? And what are they, what is that telling us 
Right. Okay, this is a perfect bridge into defining a few terms that I think sure. are really confusing for people. Sure. So there's prebiotics, mm -hmm. there's probiotics, and there's yes. postbiotics. Mm -hmm. And uh, can you help yes, disentangle absolutely. that morass? Sure. And I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll give you kind of the, the nerdy um, ISAP <laughs> version, which is yeah. more the International Society of you know, Prebiotics and Probiotics who regulate the term scientifically for the international community. I will just preface this by saying that scientists misuse the term all the time. And in fact, we wrote a, we wrote a paper, um, Dr. Gregor Reed, um, who authored, chaired the panel for the UN in 2001, and then has done all the subsequent definitional like updates for the WHO of the term probiotic. And he was president of ISAP. And he wrote a paper with my co-founder and a number of other scientists for Frontiers in Microbiology, like I think two, three years ago, <laughs> like having to just re-clarify, yeah. not for the wellness community, <laughs> not for the people shopping grocery stores who are buying like probiotic tortilla chips, but actually for scientists because there's so much misunderstanding. And so hopefully that's also comforting for people who don't understand it because there is a lot of misuse of the term, even honestly within the scientific field. Um, but the term, you know, to start with, I'll start with a probiotic because it's kind of, you can work from there really easily. So Probiotic, according to the definition, is a live microorganism when administered in an adequate dose confers a benefit to the host. And if you just break that down. You've never said that before, right? <laughs> oh, I mean, I've written that. I mean, yes, I think all of us at CEDA have it like tattooed. In our, <laughs> yeah, right. It's like in our in, in, ingrained in our, in our memory. Yeah, it's on a um, dusty scroll. Somewhere. And I don't, I can't actually recite the definitions for the other two, but I can tell you what they yeah. are. Um, so, and what's important if you just break that down is it's live which means that you have to demonstrate that it's live and viable as an organism. It's administered in a dose, which means that through some aspect of human, human trial or clinical research, you've derived what the appropriate dose is to be able to, to affect a measurable benefit um, in, the, in a host. And that could be a dog <laughs> and it could be a human, it could be a honeybee. Um, but, but that creates, as you can imagine, some precision to which microbe, which means you can't just say, um, you know, the, the species, you need to know what strain it is. Um, you need to know which microbe it is. You need to establish the, the aliveness of it. Um, and then the other pieces. And, th and that is established through research, um, rigor, and then obviously the ability to reproduce that dosage and that effect across, depending on what you're measuring, either a heterogeneous population, a specific disease population for a specific indication, et cetera. And so that's why the term itself, for example, in the EU or places like Japan, where there's really stringent regulation, where they adhere to that term from a consumer perspective too, the term probiotic cannot be used in like in Europe, for example, without the adherence to that definition. Mm. In the US, the term's not regulated, which um, I think is probably why you and I could go on Amazon right now and buy probiotic pillowcases um, and uh, cleaning products, tortilla chips and chocolate bars. Um, but uh, but that that is, um, and any number of other like foods and beverages that might be fermented, but may not uh, meet the definition. Right, so it has to be live bacteria. And then I assume in order for it to confer a benefit, it actually has to be able to make it through mm -hmm. your stomach and all the acids and enzymes that have gone mm -hmm. on in there and then through your small intestine and into your colon. Yep. 
I mean, look, yeah. there's nuance to this, right? Yeah. One of the reasons we believe, like at least for Seed, that our first, our kind of flagship project, product uh, DSO one that does have like a really interesting delivery system, which is symbiotic, so it's a little bit different. Um, why that's so effective is because we're able to understand the release profile through the GI track, and we do think yeah. that's part of why it is so effective. In addition to the dose, and in addition to the strain, the consortia of strains that were chosen for very specific endpoints. That is not to say, and that probably leads us to the definition of postbiotic, that is not to say, and there is research to suggest, that postbiotics, which are do not have to be live, they can just be dead organisms, really, um, or not necessarily be viable as live organisms, can also be administered. Um, and there's signaling that some people believe happens, and I think there's been some early research to this effect, that just taking dead microbes may also have a benefit because there's mm -hmm. signaling that can happen as they move through the GI tract, even if they're not alive. It's not the world that we spend the most time in, but I would be it would be unscientific to dismiss it. Yeah. Um, and I think there's some work in postbiotics that's being looked at in other biomes of the body, like skin and other applications, where there may be viability. Um, it's just not. It's just doesn't make it a probiotic. Right. Just to be just to be definitional about it, and it doesn't. Um, it doesn't necessarily, it, 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 from what I understand, uh, it's been hard to understand whether it, what the mechanism of action is, um, and how it's working. Um, but it doesn't mean that they couldn't be effective. Yeah. Like we have a great sourdough culture, for yes. example. <laughs> there you go. And then we, we bake it. Yes. <laughs> and yes. you're like, well, uh, yeah, exactly. uh, what happened? And it's, and it still could be delicious. And yeah. there's also, you have to do it in a placebo, randomized controlled, oh. placebo controlled trial. So you yeah. need to know. Is it more? Is it statistically more significant than placebo? Mm -hmm. um, so I think it would just depend. My answer on that would just be for what, for how, you know, what's how is it being studied? What is it being used for? Claimed for? Um, I think what a lot of the industry, particularly, I've seen this in skincare, where there's a lot of class action suits right now against people that were using the pro term probiotic on their skins are their mm -hmm. skincare. They're moving to postbiotic because then you can just use dead lysates <laughs> and throw them in a moisturizer and call it a biotic. Moisturizer and people think that you're saying probiotic because yeah. they don't know, um, or they're saying postbiotic as if it's like you know they don't know what it is, but it's a new technology and it feels sounds sounds effective. Sounds effective. But um, when we're talking about really beneficial postbiotics, are we mostly talking about uh, short chain fatty acids in in your world? The the po postbiotic technically is really like the dead microbe. I think a lot of people I conflate see. it also with, and I've seen it used interchangeably with, and again even in science, with the metabolites that are coming being made by microbes. Okay. Um, but as far as the ISAP definition, doesn't doesn't I actually. See. So there is a delineation between postbiotics and metabolites. As of those definitions, yes, but I have seen it used, as I said, even in science, a bit interchangeably. Um, and I think a lot of that will be much more clearly defined. And particularly as the metabolome and the metabolites themselves become so much more important as we look at like future of human health, as we look at like drug, like new drugs, new therapeutics, new um, ways of understanding, like new biomarkers to understand like whether or not, you know, as I said, so much of the field is moving towards not so much like what's in your what's in your microbiome, but like what they're doing. Because, you know, microbes have a lot of what they call functional redundancy, which is that two different microbes can make the same 
thing. Hmm. So looking at which ones are there is not necessarily as important as how much butyrate is being produced necessarily like as a short chain fatty acid right. um, as, as, as one example. Um, so, and then prebiotic, which is, I think the last one right. is a substrate or compound that's kind of selectively utilized by microbes to do a few things. One, uh, and, and they, and it's, and it's defined as like a, it's, it's a compound or substrate that's selectively utilized by a very small, like specific niche of microbes, um, to, to either pro proliferate, to grow. So to use it as like a food source. So prebiotic is not an organism at all, just to be like super clear, cause that can be confusing. Prebiotic is really like, it's the most, if I explain it to a fifth grader, it's like, it's just, it's food for your microbes yeah. or a really important uh, compound that microbes use to make other things that are really important for your body is okay. the way that I kind of explain it to like kids. Yeah. So we hear about like polyphenols, mm -hmm. fiber, resistant exactly. starches. Yep, Would those exactly. all fall into the prebiotic category? They, there's some nuance to the way that they're, they are, they can be categorized, but in general, I think that's a really, um, uh, kind of good way to really think about them. Um, there's a lot of, I think another thing, another point of nuance with prebiotics is whether they're fermenting or non-fermenting, mm -hmm. um, which is kind of interesting. Um, the, the, we work with a compound in our adult product that is non-fermenting. And so for a lot of people that may be listening who in your community who have like are on low FODMAP diets or where right. prebiotics can be that fermentation, fermentative activity can be super uncomfortable. Um, like people who can't, you take inulin or certain like FOSS or GOSS or like these long chain um, kind of saccharides or, or and some of the shorter chain ones that cause fermentation at different parts of the GI tract. Though it's, a, so, so there's a nice distinction between like fermenting and non-fermenting. And so we work with, our adult product non-fermenting, which is a compound called punicalgin that has been tied to um, the production of a really interesting uh, metabolite called urolithin A, mm -hmm. which like a couple of years ago got like, yeah. I think LA Times was like, this <laughs> yeah. is the fountain this is the of thing. youth. Yeah. Um, so I think you're, we're going to start to see that what they're making, and just to give like a, a preview of some very uh, exciting news we'll probably be announcing in the next few months, is that what they're making will start to move us away from looking at like stool hmm. and maybe more into like the blood hmm. because you can look at meta the metabolites circulate into the blood and other parts of the body. And, and it gets us a little bit away of just like away from the, what we call kind of the friendster of microbiome, <laughs> which is like <laughs> just sequencing the composition of microbes in your stool, which if you have a parasite or you're looking for something like that is really important just to understand. But it's not, it's not the end all be all of where microbiome is going. How long does the average microbe stick around in your gut? Mm, it's a great question. Well, in terms of the ones that are residents that live there for a long time, um, a long time in some cases, obviously after a course of antibiotics, my answer would be different. After a binge drinking for seven days, my answer would be different. So a lot of that has to do with, um, you know, one of the interesting things about the microbiome is that it's incredible. You were saying that it creates agency. And part of that is because it's so malleable, right? Like part of the, uh, the, the, the lack of like that, exhilarating kind of um, climax of the Human Genome Project movie is that, you know, you can sequence the human genome, but like 
you don't go to Whole Foods and buy anything for your human genome. Like you're like, and I can't do anything about that. <laughs> so, you know, and, and not to say that, you know, ep- there are certain areas, of course, where yeah, like epigenetic, epigenome, you know, ep- yeah, yeah. epigenome and yeah. certainly environmental factors impact a lot of things just because you're predisposed to something genetically doesn't mean you're going to, there's so many factors that you can have an impact, but you're not actually changing your genome. You're just either, uh, you're, 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 changing whether or not something may express itself that you're predisposed to um, and having an impact there, which is different than the actual like microbiome, which I think that the last stat or the citation that that we had looked at again from the Weissman Institute, I think from um, Eli Elinov, who's another like extraordinary uh, microbiome scientist in Israel, uh, who who says I think he had cited about only about two percent of our microbiome is probably genomically informed, and ninety eight percent comes from information, literally like the environment, like exposure choices you make, choices you don't make, <laughs> uh, but you're exposed to, um, and so you can just imagine how much like agency that provides over the course of a lifetime. Yeah, and so I mean, how much agency? I guess I would ask does one have to swap it out? For example, mm-hmm. I mean, I've seen that the life expectancy of a microbe in your gut is 10 minutes or 20 yes. minutes, yep. you know? So if I'm thinking, okay, well, there's 38 trillion of them in there. <laughs> Have they all changed since we started talking? I mean, right. Oh, you I see know, what you're saying. Yeah. Time. No, I mean, it, you know, there, the, after about three to five years, I mean, it's a, it's a really great question. I, I can answer it from a probiotic perspective, which is that the administration of newer mo- microbes, if you stopped taking a probiotic, you would see them kind of wash out within three to four weeks. Mm. And, and actually, you know, a lot of people who are changing a probiotic or um, making a big dietary change, a lot of people will say give like this kind of washout period of somewhere between like you know, two, three, four weeks. Um, and then after that, you can kind of no longer see those microbes present in at least looking at stool, for example. Um, and that's important to know just because a lot of people think about probiotics as this, this thing that you take once. And then it like repopulate, like restores, rebalances, which by the way, right. there's no one who wishes that's how it worked more than I, I do, I do because it'd be so much more easy, easier to explain. Um, but really they're, they're trans, I mean, the, the microbes that you're taking are transient, you know, they, they do their work on the road. Um, they come, they come through, they're signaling, uh, they're interacting and then they're leaving. Yeah. Um, and so they're not as, uh, they're not, they're not like full-time residents, which would mean that they're colonizing. Um, which is kind of yet to be seen. And I think there's some, there's nuance around as well as n- no one in at least the serious probiotic world believes that like a microbe has to colonize in order to quote unquote work, mm. meaning to do what it was designed or studied to do. Yeah. So it's like a whirlpool that you can go, <laughs> you can recognize its mm-hmm. form, right. <laughs> but the actual molecules of water have moved on <laughs> or a flame. Yeah. You well, know. you can recognize, you, you'd also recognize what they made while they were there or yeah. helped make, yes. you know, which is kind of one of the, what I, why I was saying that function is going to be so much more important than composition. Mm-hmm. So maybe take a moment and explain um, gut health and thriving efflorescent gut health mm-hmm. versus dysbiosis and maybe even downstream from there intestinal permeability sure i mean i mean gut health i mean gut health can mean the the challenge i think i can tell you what i think people mean by it yeah and and i think that for the most part i think there's this general consensus although like a lot of things i think um there's a lot always a lot of evangelism over evidence you know and a lot of people are always like further along or ahead 
than where maybe the science science is. That being said, I think there's a lot of consensus that the gut and the related axes, whether it's the gut-lung axis, the gut-brain axis, the gut-liver axis, um, you know, the gut, of course, the gut, the um, the the various understand understanding that the gut has these con- this connectivity and impact on our systemic health is, I think, fairly well believed and characterized and understood. Of course, we're starting to understand all kinds of new (laughs) axes and mechanisms and pathways by which microbes make an impact uh, um, and and, or the gut as a whole. And of course, from an immune perspective, I think we're just starting to even understand like incredible correlations with like childhood allergies and very specific metabolic, I mean, just with a lot of nuance and understanding at like the mechanistic level of exactly how this all works. However, there are still really complex <laughs> conditions like autoimmune conditions and things that are so multifactorial that are like, you know, just cha- challenging and complex. But I think when people say gut health, I think there is this notion of this feeling that that this ecosystem is in is functioning well such that systemically you're functioning well. Hmm. Um and I think that that of course, starts very locally from this understanding of digestion, which I think, you know, for a long time, I think as we were growing up and particularly in like the antibiotics generation where like parts of our our health was so siloed, right. um, I think digestive health was something that was just seen as like, are you constipated or <laughs> do you have gas? Do you, have, you know, do you need to just like start pumping antacids basically? But I think now we're starting to understand that digestion is a real biomarker for like a lot of other things that are happening. Yeah. Um, and I think that, that comes and stems from our belief that if this is healthy and functioning, um, there's a lot of other things that are healthy <laughs> and functioning. And I think that that is a beautiful new framework, again, whether it's sometimes a little bit sensationalized uh, in terms of some of the specificity, I still think it's a better framework than starting to continuing to look at so much of the way we looked at things in such a siloed way, you know, in like our parents' generation or as we were growing up. Um, and then in terms of dysbiosis, I think, you know, there's a few different definitions of dysbiosis. I think in general, it's like the easiest way of thinking about it for people who don't know the term is like just when things are out of balance in the microbiome, which I say that with massive quotation <laughs> quotation marks because we're starting to understand that um, – we don't entirely know what that means yet. Um, mm-hmm. I think we thought we did because we were so focused on like what was in there. But now that things are moving to like, well, what are they doing? Just out of balance, may, that that understanding scientifically may change. But in general, it's easy to think about overgrowth of the bad stuff. So too much room in the neighborhood <laughs> for the bad for the bad stuff to move in, basically, um, and kind of take over. Um, I think another way to think about it would be. Uh, like just total like loss of microbial density, not even diversity. So after a course of antibiotics where it creates a very opportunistic <laughs> uh, field um, where it's unclear who's going to, who's going to win, who's going to take up the, the most residents and who's going to, is there going to be like a good, good balance after some of those more like indiscriminating, like wipe out everything uh, moments, which by the way, in some cases are really important, particularly yeah. in the case of a really bad pathogen or something. Yeah. Um, and so those are really, and so, it, and then there's this notion of just kind of being out of balance, which means that um, there's just very disproportionate amounts of different, different, uh, different micro, microbial communities. And what that leads to, depending on 
where how that dysbiosis is happening is um, an unhealthy amount of permeability. There's always some aspects of permeability, but when the junctions or the epithelial wall and those there's a, there's this allowance of things to flow too freely <laughs> into the um, into the bloodstream and out of the GI tract and that's out of balance, that's where you start to see inflammation and of course the body's response to those compounds that are not supposed to be going out out of the GI tract and into the um, into the body. And that's where you start to see autoimmune and conditions, responses, et cetera. And obviously like just misfiring of, you know, the immune system because it's not, they're not, it's, it's things that are not supposed to be outside the GI tract. Got it. That's helpful. So I assume there's a lot of contributors. Yes. Many. To this condition of, Many. well, a lot of people call it leaky gut, but intestinal permeability, the separation mm -hmm. of the tight junctures in the epithelial. Yes. And can you take us through some of the primary yes. contributors? Yeah, of course. I mean, I always say this is kind of the boring part because it's so much of like what people know for health. <laughs> yeah. But at least now, I think research in microbiome is at a point where like we really do know that like these compounds like hurt, hurt and or nourish or help. Um, in a healthy individual. So I think, you know, we talked about antibiotics, but, you know, again, I'll just stress that like in the right moment, <laughs> they'll save your life. So I'm not anti-antibiotics. I would also say just for so many people who are more in like the more wellness and alternative or functional world, that just because oregano oil and colloidal <laughs> silver uh, and garlic seem, uh, seem quote unquote natural, um, that the overuse of those are really powerful antimicrobials, um, mm. you know, and just something to really like, you know, oregano oil is used as an antibiotic in livestock. Like it's, these are really strong antimicrobials that should not just be just, just indiscriminately taken uh, at the first sign of a cold, just because you don't want to take antibiotics because yeah. you are well, taking anti, you are taking a very strong yeah. antimicrobial. Well, penicillin is a fungi. Yeah, of course. Right? Yeah, so, well, and so, asp an aspirin, yes. is, aspirin is willow bark, so, <laughs> you know. So um, that, that's, a, that's, I think, one of my favorite books, which is, if you know the writer Alan Levinovitz, he wrote the book uh -huh. Natural. You would love his writing. Okay. He wrote uh, The Gluten Lie. Okay. <laughs> yes, probably uh, bad and natural. Probably don't make him a crowd favorite, um, you know, at <laughs> yoga retreats. But uh, <laughs> it's a really important perspective. You know, he writes about, like, the origin of vanilla and like, you know, how corrupt that is and the yeah. orchid industry and just, just like our perception of what's natural. Um, and just, you know, like you said at the beginning of, of this, just the importance of asking questions. Yeah. Um, okay. So, yeah. So there's, so, so antibiotics, the reason I was bringing it up is a, just to mention the fact that like some of those more natural antimicrobials are very powerful. Second is that unless you are, it is a known bacteria, uh, infection of bacterial origin, or you're doing it very under some sort of very specific protocol for the, like either prior, prior to an FMT or prior to some sort of um, other intervention, I would just caution against like using antibiotics indiscriminately. I think a lot of people like start to feel a cold and they're like, oh, I have a trip coming up and they just like get a Z-pack <laughs> mm -hmm. just to be sure. Um, and so I think not only is that leading to antimicrobial resistance, which is probably a whole other episode and the downfall of humanity, but, um, <laughs> but, uh, but it is definitely something that can impact your gut and then of course mm -hmm. other functions in your health if you don't need it and you start to, and you take them indiscriminately, which a lot of people do. The second is alcohol, um, where we're, we're doing a really, some really interesting research now, just looking at the impact of alcohol on the human cell wall. 
as well as the microbiome. And I think we actually, some of our early in vitro data was just on like two shots of gray, gray goose vodka in this like really cool model called Shine, which is like a simulation of the human intestinal system. It's a, a, part, a research partner in Belgium or sure. in Brussels, I believe. Um, and that's really interesting. So because, you can kind of simulate the digestion system yeah. in the lab, basically. Yeah, exactly. Oh, it's that's a chamber. Amazing. It's like the kind of the size of like maybe half this room and they have every chamber and they can control the microbial population. They control digestive and uh, acid by, I mean, bile salt. It's, it's incredible. You can like simulate human the, digestion. Yeah. I read a book recently that, um, this is very crude mm -hmm. to be honest. Uh, it was, I think in the 19th century and there was a a furrier or a fur trader, mm -hmm. I should say, who got shot in a duel or something like that, uh, you know, something mm -hmm. very yeah. 1800s. Um, and there was a physician that saved him, but then he couldn't be a fur trader anymore. So he went to go work for this physician, but he couldn't suture up the actual wound. And oh, wow. so the physician ended up using him as sort oh, of yes. a, yeah, yeah. as an experiment. Amazing. And he would uh, tie what I guess would be the equivalent of like fishing line. Yes, I do know what you're into, talking about. Onto mm -hmm. food and yep. actually stick it through his digestive system. I, I know what you're talking about. In fact, yeah. they simulated it in a movie that I saw when I was a child and like never forgot that <laughs> at all. It's it was like crazy. It's crazy. Yeah, it's incredible. It's in some movie somewhere. And I absolutely remember yeah. that. Yeah, it's 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 an amazing story. And and by the way, that one thing, just to go back to the beginning of our conversation that I did forget to mention, we were talking about the beginning of all of this is that some things and like, I'm always so surprised by this because I'm just like, really, no one ever just like went in there. But you know, some of the reasons we don't know about things is because we kid couldn't get to them. Yeah. So like, you know, obviously like the, the bottom of the ocean is a great example, but, um, and how much we don't know about that, which is like an, an amazing amount of unknown knowledge given what we know about like space, for example. Um, but the gut is really, I mean, <laughs> unless you're doing like punch biopsies or incredibly invasive testing, it is very hard to get to it, to understand it. It's deep ocean. Um, yeah, it's deep ocean. <laughs> and so and in a lot of ways, I forgot to mention that earlier, just because like mm. sometimes you, know, you just think of the human body as something that they used to like just like open up and right. <laughs> check out, but actually like in a lot, in a lot of ways, like sometimes research is just stalled because there aren't always these like really either ethical or, um, uh, like kind of easy ways to, to get to a location in the body. And then it just ends up being like not studied as, as much as like your skin. Yeah. So you're going to kill my dreams on resveratrol and red wine now. <laughs> I, I'm not going to kill any dreams about no, any, any of any, no, no, actually, because I think, you know, and that's where the nuance comes in, right? Yeah. So it's like, okay, so alcohol is not great, but if I am going to drink it, red wine obviously is like high, higher polyphenolic, mm -hmm. um, count than, you know, and obviously other compounds that despite sometimes questionable <laughs> scientific histories, yes. uh, can be beneficial. Um, and so, you know, so I think a lot of it then just comes down to, um, you know, how much and which one and uh, how often and with what. Um, but I think for sure, like, I think in general, just like the moderation of alcohol intake, knowing that it does impact the microbiome um, and it does impact the human cell wall, too, um, in terms of a permeability perspective is, in, is really interesting to like at least just know about. And also, yeah. again, it's the not not doing it's then, OK, well, what are the things you can do to nurture and kind of nourish that that ecosystem that um, could at least help temper some of the 
the things you really still want to do. Yeah. So I'm going to draw you into the animal protein debate for one second. So what's okay. up? You know, I've read a lot about TMAO and all yes. these kinds of things. <laughs> yes. Um, yes. Any particular viewpoint on it? I mean, I, I mean, I think. Well, I'll, I'll I'll say actually, it's really interesting. We're doing some research on whether there's a meat microbiome, and looking mm. at the microbiome of meat actually in uh, farm raised versus factory versus, and looking at some of those, um, and also. A lot of the research recently has demonstrated that the differences are not as stark as I think we would like to, like to, like really? to see, not from a microbiome perspective, just from other perspectives. But, um, I, you know, from it, it, I can, let me go, I'll go back to the, I'll come at it from the microbiome perspective and, and kind of speak to it from what we know to be good. Um, so I would say, and, and, it's, and it is really hard because it really depends, again, goes to like how much for what, and the truth is, is that we're moving towards a place where we're getting to such large data sets that the field so far has, I don't wanna say has been guessing, but has been highly correlative. Mm -hmm. And now we're coming to the place with these like huge data sets that are in some cases going to be five, 10, soon 15 years old. And the answer to the question will be for you or for me, right? Mm -hmm. And it will be, <laughs> and, and the answer for you may not be that it's right for me. Um, or which ones, or red meat versus poultry, you know. So, right. so I, I'd say that there's a lot of nuance to that. But I would just to start from what we know about the microbiome. We know how important plants are. We know that from the Human American Gut Project um, and like all the work out of UCSD and that big um, citizen science project that followed the Human Microbiome Project. That thirty, like I think they 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 looked at this interest interesting stat that came out of it that was like. 30 different types of plants yeah. every week led to like a more diverse microbiome. Right. And I think that's important just because people who eat mostly plant-based, you end up in a lot of the same loops. Super <laughs> yeah, superfoods right. or the loops, yeah. but actually uh, the diversity was something that was really, um, I think really interesting to think about. Um, you know, and it's all at different levels, right? Like sure, eat the same plants every day if you're not eating a Big Mac, right? <laughs> every day. So, yeah. you know, of course it, it depends on food access. It depends on a lot of different things. But for the most part, I thought that was really fascinating that the different types of plants and of course the different, um, uh, the variety of them. And then of course what you were referring to earlier in terms of different types of fibers um, and then all the phytonutrients and the phytochemicals that your microbes then use from those and how important fiber is and how important those prebiotic compounds can be to the proliferation of the of good bacteria, to the to the um, flourishing of this rainforest <laughs> that you're trying to keep dense and and healthy, um, and of course to the function that you want them to be able to have, so that they have enough of these compounds that they can continue to make all this really good stuff um, for your body. And so I I I think that plant based or primarily plant based continues to be, to me, really important. Um, but then you have to say, okay, well, what about like omega-3s? Because those are really important for the microbiome too. And you can look to certainly olive oil, uh, and you can look to avocados and you can look to certain foods, plant-based foods. Absolutely. But, you know, I think that there's an argument, there's argumentation for sardines and some of the smaller anchovies and some of the smaller fish that don't accumulate metals and, um, can be a little bit more responsibly, um, gotten, yeah. <laughs> but you know, it's hard to sometimes you say these things and you have to remember that not all these suggestions are sustainable. Um, so <laughs> that's right. beyond the human health. Yeah. 
So with the consumption of meat, mm -hmm. especially, you know, CAFO or industrial mm -hmm. meat, where they're using antibiotics. Uh, exactly. That was where I was heading, okay, which is yeah. like, it's so, it, and then, and then when you come back to meat, which is, again, I, I, I'm trying not to be like circuitous, but it, yeah. it you know, it, it is a really hard, it's a hard topic. I know people who, um, as I said, I think in the future, we're going to know a lot more about like whether it's right for you and maybe not for me. Mm -hmm. Um, and, that, and I'm actually not somebody who's obsessed with personalization. I think there's a lot of interesting, uh, things that are going to come in the future, but I don't, I don't have like this obsession that everything in the future will be personalized. Um, to your point about the human genome project, we're not that, sometimes we're not that <laughs> exciting, but I do, I do think that, and the debate has gone back and forth, even within our company and even in science, a lot of people debate, debate this all the time. Meat is something for me that like when, when you, yes, there's the TMAO discussion and there's certain aspects. In fact, as I said, some of the research that we're currently doing that was not conclusive yet, but um, hopefully next time we, <laughs> we do this, I can speak more conclusively from a microbiome perspective. Um, but I will say that I think the, that if co constituting a small percentage, if you are going to eat it, but I also think that the meat, particularly in this country is not, and I'm, I'm, I'm coming to you after caring for my husband of two days off of the worst food poisoning he's ever had oh, no. in his entire life um, off of a turkey meatball from a very quote unquote healthy and expensive healthy <laughs> place. Yeah. Um, you know, so I, I do think that um, it's not so much looking at meat in isolation as like what you were saying, which is that, you know, depending on where you're getting it, particularly in this country, between antibiotics and all of the other kind and just like the soil, what they're eating, the water sources, the processing. Um, there's so many things that, you know, it's, it's nice for some of the people that are in maybe more of the wellness world who like go off and like kill their own, <laughs> kill their own meat. And certainly there's yeah. ways to do it that absolutely would be more supportive and of course more sustainable, but it is hard for someone who likes myself to think more about like, less even about some of the science and actual chemistry that you're talking about, like the compounds um, and inflammation and things like that, which I think you could argue with anyone for hours yeah. about. There's just the aspect of like, it's just not sustainable. Yeah. But it's not, it doesn't come down to, for example, when you feed a particular strain of bacteria mm -hmm. fiber, yes. it produces butyrate. Mm -hmm. But if you feed some other... Uh, strain of bacteria, yep, animal meat. protein, or meat, it produces uh, hydrogen sulfide or something. I see so. what you're saying. I, you know, the fermentative aspects of meat, I, you know, I don't, I, to be honest with you, I, I'm not as familiar with, um, but to qualify, I, I don't know, I don't think the way that like the, the amino acids would be more what would be probably at that point of digestion be interacting. So I, I, if it's okay with you, I'll get back to you for the okay, show notes cool. for that. Because I need to, think, <laughs> I I need to think a little bit about that. But they wouldn't be like, it's not like, oh, meat as a prebiotic mm -hmm. makes this and therefore it's bad. Right. Um, it would be, I have, so I'll, I'll get back to you on the meat, okay. the meat conversation. What about sugar? Yeah, I mean, sugar, <laughs> sugar, I mean, you know, the, the, the other interesting thing about microbes is that they start kind of what you're saying about um, maybe attracting who you love. Um, or having some sort of like evolutionary predisposition for you to like procreate with some, somebody uh, through your armpit, uh, armpit bacteria. Microbes are, they often, they are, what you feed them and what you give them on a regular basis has a lot to do with what, the, what you continue to crave. 
And yeah. so they they definitely mm. start to because you know they start to self select then and become the dominant <laughs> voice uh, in what you eat. Um, and so sugar is a big one that actually can be very perturbing, especially like refined and processed sugars, particularly ones that are um, not necessarily being accompanied by any kind of fi you know fi from a fiber perspective. That's what you find more in like fruit you know fruits, for example. Um, but yes, sugar is a big one. Sugar and processed foods in general. I mean, just refined sugars have are absolutely like, I mean, certain microbes like them, but not the microbes that you want to like them or liking right. them. And then they'll keep signaling to crave them. Right. So off diet for a second. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, the last few years have been dominated by fear and anxiety and stress. Mm -hmm. Yes. And the relationship between stress and your endocrine system and mm -hmm. the secretion of certain kinds of hormones, et cetera. Yes. Can you pull on that thread a tiny bit in terms mm -hmm. of the relationship between stress and gut balance? Yeah, of course, absolutely. I mean, the, the gut-brain axis, which is this kind of bi-directional highway that exists between the gut and the brain, which is, you know, primarily uh, that the, it, you know, primarily through, um, the you know, the vagus nerve and um, it's kind of where most of the communication happens, um, although they're finding kind of new signaling and, and all kinds of connectivity all the time and starting to look at more and more ways. But for the most part, it is bi-directional, which is important because it's not so much this like, I think one of the ways that it gets like a little sensationalized is this, the gut's telling your brain what to, <laughs> what to yeah. do, but it's, there's a very like two-way walkie-talkie here. Um, and so the, you know, stress is one of the areas that they have found. Actually, your microbiome, even prior to like where gut-brain access research is today, I mean, your gut really responds to stress. I think there's like some really interesting studies that were done a while ago of like the microbiome in a crowded elevator. Um, and if you have, if you're somebody who's like more claustrophobic and you can That's see me. like the impact of a stressful situation <laughs> on the microbiome. And that was before really understanding like what, what, what kind of signaling is happening. What's, and, and so I think you absolutely, I mean, stress is a really big one, which is one of the ones when I was going to talk about, you know, when you asked me the question of like, what are all the things that can hurt, hurt it, but stress is a really big one. Um, and now what we're starting to understand, and actually one of our scientists who's on our, on our board and probably one of the best scientists working in the field of gut brain today, Dr. Sarkis Masmanian at Caltech, who's, you know, not, who's right here, um, is working on really understanding how microbes and the metabolites that they produce suppress or increase like our stress response. Mm. Um, a lot of his work is in autism as well. So really interesting to look at like neuropsychiatric conditions or diseases where, you know, of course you see these things like really exaggerated um, and what that looks like um, and what that metabolic signature looks like and, and what's happening. But he was one of the first to identify uh, in mice and has now just published in human studies, first human study, um, some of the, one of the metabolites that's responsible for things like stress response and social behavior, mm. um, which is really interesting. And so your microbiome very much responds to stress. It is one of the greatest perturbations. And I think that's probably why you see such dysbiosis in people with like IBS, IBD, you know, yeah. Crohn's things. And one of the challenges with all of these, um, even with autism and, and why it's so important that the science moves forward to understand like how this is working mechanistically is that so many of the areas you start, there's so much correlation between GI distress and some of these neuropsychiatric conditions yeah. and you get a bit into the chicken and egg there too. 
Because right. when you ameliorate the GI distress, you also ameliorate these feelings of anxiety and stress. And so what's hard to know is that <laughs> did the GI condition, yeah. and, and you see that sometimes in autism because you have kids who really suffer and have a lot of GI distress. And then you sometimes, um, the, the, there's a lot of research earlier, early research, some of it a little bit sensationalized on probiotics for children with autism. And so you would see that like just by in, like increasing their bowel frequency or helping them go to the bathroom more easily or reducing bloating and some of the cramping, some of the things that can come from very specific strains, that their symptoms would get better. So of course yeah. people say, oh, probiotics cure yeah. autism. <laughs> um, and so I think there's a lot more to unpack there, but people like Dr. Masmanian and others are now really like, there's a lot of clarity about the mechanism, what's working, particularly in mice. There's a lot of evidence, but as we know, now it needs to be brought into humans. But um, we, we do know that the microbiome is incredibly um, responsive to, to stress. And it, it's a really, it's a really big one that, um, that we see obviously exacerbate many conditions and quality of life for people too. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of these chicken and the egg issues come down just to this notion that all of these systems are connected. Yeah, absolutely. And yes. I mean, okay. I think about sleep mm -hmm. and, and gut dysbiosis, for example, mm -hmm. and you can have, uh, trouble sleeping because you have sleep apnea or a whole yes. myriad reasons why you might have trouble sleeping and that will raise your cortisol levels exactly. and high chronic cortisol levels will have a, an impact on your gut, which is just mm -hmm. detrimental. Yes. At the same time, you might have uh, a gut in dysbiosis and that's prohibiting you from getting good sleep, which exactly. has all yes. sorts of downstream impacts. Yes. So it's, um, so it, it is and really microbes hard. have their own circadian rhythm. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yep. And they need, they need rest. Oh, that's right. They need rest too. Um, they see this the way that they, some, one of the most interesting things I've seen them study in this world is that um, you'll see dysbiosis in not just other, other disruptions, um, but they, they'll, stu they'll study like shift workers. Mm. Um, and, there's, and not only shift workers, but um, they'll see that like the dysbiosis is related to, of course, the disruption of the circadian rhythms, not just of the human, but also microbes have their own circadian rhythm that's really important um and they need to rest and 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 uh do a lot of really important things um at nights so that they you know so that they can of course do their important functions during the day um and so when you see that get out of sync and you see that a lot of people think and there's some hypotheses around um, you know, jet lag and whether or not that what's, what's kind of yeah. happening between my, microbiome and, uh, the human, but also in shift workers, it wasn't even just in the shift workers themselves that they saw disruptions and dysbiosis, but they also saw it in something called secondhand shift work, which is the nuclear family of someone who's a shift worker. Huh. Yeah. Um, and the impact of their shifts, even without like huge disruptions, um, but you would see it like impacting the the nuclear family or whomever you're living with as well. And then there are um, some of the biomarkers that they could study to see what those disruptions did too, which yeah. is fascinating. It just shows you how wrong we've gotten everything. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, you could even um, think about light, for example, yeah. that in humans sets the circadian rhythm. Yes. There's these little neurons, melanopsies, mm -hmm. I think in the bottom of the yeah. retina that sense light at mm -hmm. a certain time in the morning. That's why it's always important to try to go outside and get light in the morning, which sets your circadian rhythm, which essentially regulates the secretion of cortisol melatonin yep. at certain times in the day. Yes. And if uh, you're not getting that light, 
Or, for example, if you're getting blue light from your phone or from yes. your computer mm -hmm. screen, binging Netflix mm -hmm. late into the night, mm -hmm. well, that's going to screw up your circadian rhythm by extension your endocrine system and the release of certain hormones at certain yes. times of the day, which could then, of course, have downstream Absolutely. impacts on your gut. So yes. it's all of this stuff is just... Uh, and, and, thing, yeah. and, and really interesting things that we see now being correlated with um, like metabolic disruptions, right? So yeah. if, if the gut and brain connection is a big part of like signaling satiety, mm. like when you're satiated, right? When you should stop mm. eating, you can just see how just how those little disruptions and then that signal is interrupted. And it's like, wait, did you say we're full? I don't can't hear you. Know, yeah. I, I can't bad signal, you know, and, and then, of course, you start to see that then over, you know, the, the increase of body weight and increase or overconsumption of food, you know, and so you just start to see how these things um, impact each other. Or, for example, something as simple as like the neurotransmitters that impact motility. Right. Um, right. So like a lot of people also sensationalize that, that stat that 90% of the serotonin in your body is produced in the gut. True, but not all for regulation of your mood. Also, it's really important and just like making sure you poop well, uh, cause that stimulates the neuro, you know, the, the motility, um, of your bowel. And so, but you just start to see how these things, uh, when these signals and all this, you know, this chemistry is obviously <laughs> disrupted. Uh, and then you have, you know, a big part of the population that like, is basically clinically constipated. You have right now 14% 14, 14 of American children are clinically diagnosed as constipated. Wow. Which is incredible, you know? Yeah, so I was actually going to ask you about that as one of these kind of mythologies yes. of yeah. the microbiome because you're so good at at, um, at unveiling them. So, yeah, the, the serotonin one, for example. Mm -hmm. And yeah. serotonin is interesting because it's actually the precursor to melatonin. Mm -hmm. yes. <laughs> so you really need it for a whole variety of reasons. Mm -hmm. It's not just this feel-good hormone. But, yeah, you know, you hear that statistic thrown around a lot. 90% of your serotonin is made uh, in your gut. Now, is that, like, is that true and is that cross the blood-brain barrier so is if you have a happy gut will you have like a happy mood or is that kind of well i think i think it's uh again i think i mean i think that there's <laughs> there's no there's no shortage of people on instagram that would yeah. agree with you okay um i don't know if it's that one-to-one -one, nor do i think there's necessarily evidence to support that given how many other factors impact it <laughs> Um, I would say it's a really important contributing factor. Um, microbes, as far as we know today, do not cross the blood-brain barrier, although we do have a really interesting study with the NIH to determine if there are any microbes in the brain, yeah. which is like a really cool thing because to date, we've been, they've been known to, of course, be sterile. Um, but of course, those are the compounds and obviously some of the metabolites that do cross the blood-brain barrier and a really important part of that, like that crosstalk. Um, and I, yeah, I think the stat is, I have to look up the latest like citation, you know, these, uh, there's always some newer number or percentage and I'm always hesitant just because the mainstream kind of people, and by the way, so you see this in science, like you'll still see scientific papers today that use the 10, 10 to, to one, one all the time, you know, yeah. which is, in, which is incredible. Um, uh, and really, and, and really interesting, but in terms of the percentage, it's a very high percentage. I don't know if that's the exact percentage. Um, it's just it would be misleading to think it was just for the regulation of mood and anxiety um, and all the things that you kind of think of serotonin as and just like precursors to like things like melatonin because it does have just a very uh, mechanical utility, <laughs> which is that it, it, um, it's, a it's an important neurotransmitter that, that does very important things like the elimination of waste too, um, which I think people just don't think about. Yeah. Um, so let's say 
that you know you're eating fiber and you've got a good <laughs> healthy yeah. plethora and diversity of of uh of bacteria in your gut and everything's cranking well mm-hmm. um that that can really influence a whole variety of axes mm-hmm. of of health mm-hmm. and um, here's another statistic that's thrown around a lot, and maybe you can unwind it, that 70 to 80% of our immune system mm-hmm. is in our gut. Mm-hmm. So what is the relationship between a healthy gut and a mm-hmm. healthy immune system? Yeah, I mean, it, you know, it, it kind of starts, I mean, it's there's a lot of crosstalk between like a gut and immune cells. Um, and and the, the, the percentage is probably pretty close. I think that has a lot to do with what happens in like early childhood development and where our immune system and our, how our gut kind of develop and co-evolve. But if you think about it, there's a tremendous amount of information that's coming in to the gut on a daily. I mean, obviously in the, in the form, form of um, anything ingested uh, that we need um, to live. And early on in like the, you know, in early childhood development, the gut and the immune system are kind of co, they're kind of developing at the same time. So, you know, you have um, the early, you know, infant, infant microbiome that is incredibly malleable and uh, that's developing in the GI tract of the baby. And all of that like early training is happening in the GI tract and in, with those microbes that's training your immune system, hmm. hopefully in a healthy way. Um, of course, what we're what we know now is that the correlates and even now kind of um, pretty clear, uh, more than correlative, but pretty clear direct connections between everything from allergies to autoimmune conditions to even certain areas like um, you know autism that we're starting to see that there's during these developmental windows when our microbiome is is forming um, and solidifying into what they call steady state, which is scientists say somewhere between three and five years old, there are these windows where the GI tract is developing uh, along with microbes and your immune system. And this is where like the friend or foe <laughs> learning, learning like what's good, what's bad. Do I have a response to that? Do I not have a response to that? And of course, there's so many factors that influence from the minute you're born you know, before you're born, now that we know, uh, the <laughs> maternal, <laughs> speaking yeah. of which, um, all the way through, you know, those first formative years is really where there's this kind of like co-development period where they're, um, you know, your of course your GI tract is developing and digest, starting to, of course, starts with breast milk and certain carbohydrates and, and the nutrients that are coming from either breast milk or formula. Uh, but then, of course, a lot of information that's coming from the outside world. And really during that time is when the immune system is learning, right? Mm-hmm. And that's the training wheel period. Um, and then by the time you're at a steady state microbiome, you, you know, a lot of things like either whether food allergies have either developed or not developed, um, or the pre, pre, the foundation for whether they will develop has certainly been laid in some, in some way, or whether or not your immune system will kind of misfire, or there'll be other kind of, um, uh, good or bad outcomes from that period, depending on what information and what kind of helped shape it environmentally. Um, and so that, that if you think about just the way it develops at a very early age stage, you start to understand like <laughs> the, wh- why, how important that crosstalk is, um, and what, why the immune system is basically based there, <laughs> yeah. um, and why it plays, why those formative years are so impactful to kind of the way that your immune system then functions really for life. 
Um, and so they're incredibly and inextricably intertwined. Um, I think the, the the stats that we see, that I've seen are, are that number of seventy to eighty percent seem it's it's about right. Um, certainly, when you think about like the way it co develops and um, how it's how it's kind of stabilized and formed. Um, but obviously, there's so many other factors that impact how your how it all functions. And we talked about like permeability. We talked about like um, the mic microbes are such a big part. Just to show like one mechanical example of such a big part of the integrity of that gut wall. So like a really beautiful circular example is like microbes um, metabolize certain compounds and make short chain fatty acid called butyrate. Butyrate is like the lead energy source for the colonocytes right. in your gut. And that of course is what maintains the integrity of it. And when that integrity is broken, you get things like leaky gut and you get poor, poorly or misinformed triggers of the immune system. And so you can just see how circular, yeah. and then of course there's many other examples. That's the like coolest that. thing. When I read that, I think I might have read that on your website because mm -hmm. you guys have so much good information on on seed.com. Because I always associate um, energy production mm -hmm. with either glucose or sure. free fatty acids or yeah. ketones in some mm -hmm. cases sure. if you're in ketosis. Um, but you don't really associate the energy production right. from butyrate or yes. from metabolites. Yep. And I'm like, that is co-evolution in a yes. nutshell right 100%. there it's amazing yes. yeah exactly um, and and but and also just going back to the genome versus microbiome and agency yeah. and there are foods and these plant fibers and and phytonutrients and phytochemicals that you know allow your microbes to make more of that stuff and so <laughs> of that yeah. good stuff and so you can also just see how you play a role in the choices that you make every day um, both consciously and some that are not, you know, particularly environmentally that we don't always make for ourselves, um, of areas where we can be conscious and areas where we have a lot of agency um, in that in that circularity. Yeah, I was also reading about um, the impact of metabolites, I think butyrate on T cell differentiation, mm -hmm. specifically mm -hmm. around T regulatory cells. Mm -hmm. This gets a little down the <laughs> rabbit hole here. Yes, yes, it does. But um, essentially these immune cells that are sent T cells, which are central to your immune system, mm -hmm. um, T regulatory cells to the degree that I understand it help to sort of suppress overreaction of the immune yes. system. Mm -hmm. So we heard a lot about like the cytokine storms in COVID yes. and, and yeah. whatnot. And I believe that there actually are some preliminary studies that have shown that the more severe contraction of COVID has some correlation yes. with there, depleted that microbiome. Came out, that came out recently. Um, we talk so much about T-Regs yeah. at Sea that we have a sweatshirt, a uh, okay. sweatshirt that Good. we made for one of our scientists, um, Dr. Aza Gadir, who um, was our director of R&D. She's now one of our scientific advisors. Um, her her uh, seminal um, uh, kind of culmination of her work at, Har at Harvard before she had joined us um, was, was looking at T-Regs and mm. their development of um, childhood allergies. And she had a cover of Nature paper, um, which it, if you don't know, is like very fancy in science. Yeah. It's like, well, it's it's like, like cover, that's like cover of American journal. Vogue. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and so, uh, and she, yeah. um, American Vogue, and she, uh, <laughs> and she's not Hong Kong Vogue. Uh, and she, um, and, and her paper was about um, T-regs and the development of um, allergies. And actually that there's this switch that they found um, that actually could be flipped uh, for kids with, and it, that worked for all allergic food alert, allergic responses to food except for shellfish. 
Hmm. So, and it had to do with, of course, Tregs and um, the, the specific pathway that they had just they had discovered, um, and that uh, would be using a very specific microbe to flip that switch, which is really fascinating. Wow. So, there's a lot. Yeah, there's there's a lot there. Um, it's not a big focus of our work um, at Seed, um, outside of a little bit of the some of the gut brain. Uh, work that we're that we're working on with um, Dr. Mesmanian, but um, but it's a f a whole other area that um, I think we're going to start to know so much more about. And yeah, the T reg stuff for COVID came out, but there's a lot of I mean really interesting research about uh, T regs allergies and of course the development of other like autoimmune conditions too, and the role of the microbiome in that. Mm -hmm. So there's a number of studies out there. Um, Kind of switching gears a little bit to metabolism and, mm -hmm. and the gut, uh, particularly in vivo mice studies, where you know they'll take um, uh, the gut flora mm -hmm. of uh, um, of a fat mouse and put it in a skinny yeah. mouse and feed mm -hmm. them and feed them the same diet, and the skin or, or they don't change yeah. the diet of the skinny mouse, but the skinny mouse gets fat, and, and the fat mouse gets lean, and the fat mouse gets lean. Yes. So what's going on there? I mean, is that upgrading, upregulating <laughs> insulin sensitivity? Yeah. Or what's happening? Uh, well, actually, the, there's two there's two studies that happened. One that one was in 2006. I think that you're, I believe it was from yeah. Jeff Gordon's lab, and then there's another exactly. one that I believe was a, a few years later um, that also demonstrated that you could make um, the mouse's uh, fur much more lush and shiny. Yes, um, which just really shows you how science is so. Uh, still such a uh, still a slave to the things that we value as a society because <laughs> right. the field didn't really pop until you could show that people could look younger and lose weight, sure. which is honestly how many areas, particularly you see this with longevity now and you see this with other areas like people don't pay attention to you until you can show that you could lose weight and look better, younger in this well, case. Yeah. Or live um, to 150. And I would say I don't think from that mouse study that they were able to pinpoint like this is specifically like the mechanism. What, mm -hmm. But what it the reason it was like that shot hurt around the scientific world and why it blew up the um, the science internet <laughs> is because it was one of the first ways that you could actually demonstrate how powerful um, the microbiome was from a metabolic you know from a metabolic perspective and in terms of like metabolism. Um, weight management and the fact that, you know, you, these transplantations, which, you know, are being used for a number of things today. Um, I think we believe the future will be a lot, have a lot more specificity to it. But of course, like as an interim solution, I think a lot of people are finding success with what they call FMTs, um, which are mm. these fecal microbiota transplants mm, right. where you do take a health, healthy microbiome um, and transplant it. Uh, into someone who has a specific condition endpoint, or you know, some sort of something that's resulting from uh, what someone believes will be dys dysbiosis. And there's been there's been like there's certain areas where, um, like with certain skin conditions, like I, I believe like atopic dermatitis, psoriasis, like they've definitely shown even taking that same methodology um, to have an impact. And there's other areas too that FMT is being used. I think again, we just think it's not as precise as where we're heading, we'll be able to isolate the microbe or, um, you know, the metabolite and be able to administer it directly. But what that did tell us was that the role that um, microbes play in metabolism, and then of course that had opened. And I think what we're going to start to understand now, and that was why I was alluding to those like really big data sets, I think there's been a few 
a few microbes that have been identified that people have tried to kind of correlate with weight loss and with with metab- you know metabolic health and um, some with better some with better or worse some with better data some with maybe just need, needs needs to learn more data um, but I think what we're excited about in the future is these huge data sets where you've looked at like long large populations over long periods of time and you've started to understand like the, the these very specific markers or metabolic signatures um, and where you can start to really understand like what's actually happening, what microbe is, what microbe could be used to do this specific thing um, and who would be a responder and who would not be a responder. Mm. Um, and I think that that's coming. Um, it's just a few years away. Yeah. There's a lot of variables mm-hmm. in figuring that out. Yeah. Because when you do a full transplantation like they did with those mice, it's like it can tell you like, holy shit, we got to look at this and understand it. But what you don't then end up knowing is like, well, which which you'd have to take out and isolate which microbe did what, right. why did it do that? But of course, what we what it did unpack and like blow up for the scientific world was, oh wow, like we need to we now need to focus here because this that that tells us a lot about um, the myriad of functions that are happening um, in the from a microbiome perspective, and like that we need to really start unpacking this with more specificity. Mm-hmm. There does seem to be some um, some good data supporting mm-hmm. fecal transplants for C. diff, right? In particular, yes, yes, some, yeah, yeah. but not not. I mean, not not entirely curative, but yes, a lot of people have had, um, and you know, and that and that's always the case, like right with things that are un- considered unmet medical needs, or like people are just dying. Like you, you, something that's working is better than <laughs> some, than like right. The thing that's going to work across everything, but yes, there has there have been, although a lot of those trials have also failed to to proceed and to um, and get regulatory approval too. Yeah, it does seem that there are clues that there's some crosstalk between the genomics of mm-hmm. our microbiome and our genomics and our human genomics. Uh, yeah, and, and and other factor and and even other factors. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I think that they, what they, what we refer to as like these multi-omics data sets, which yeah. is like everything from capturing dietary data to genomics to metabolomics to microbiomics, and then using bioinformatics to start looking at these big sets and saying like, oh wow, like this person would be a responder. This person, you start to see these correlations, and that has to do with absolutely some of these. Um, genomic variations that uh, can happen at the microbial level or at the Mm -hmm. human level. Okay, one more question, Mm -hmm. and then we can, I want to talk a little bit about when the microbiome actually gets seeded. Oh, sure. Because this is also a personal topic for you. Um, But as it pertains to cognition Mm -hmm. and um, I suppose neurodegenerative disease, Mm -hmm. I've seen some folks posit that... um, that metabolites can reduce the deposition of like beta amyloid proteins in the brain, mm-hmm. for example. Mm-hmm. Um, you do you see a direct connection between what's happening with the production of SCFAs and metabolites and dementia and dementia. And all of the, yeah. I mean, I, it's another area that's really like I mean, the other the other I guess dimension to even bring into that conversation is not just like gut brain axis and <laughs> the the metabolites from the brain and the role that they might be playing in the advancement or acceleration or prevention of uh, the onset of neuropsychiatric conditions, but also like really interesting to understand that like a lot of the some oral microbiome research 
is moving there too, mm. um, such that they're starting to understand like the the role that the oral microbiome, and if you think about it geographically, right, like it's very close, um, maybe playing also in the onset of those conditions. Mm. Um, and that's another area too that um, we're, we're, we have a research track that we're going to be announcing soon that goes a little bit more um, into both gut brain and then obviously our oral microbiome stuff is coming up soon, which which is with the Forsyth Institute at Harvard, which we're incredibly excited about. And that's looking a little bit more locally um, at the oral microbiome, but they have done a tremendous amount of work starting to understand not just gut brain, but how the microbes in our mouth play a role in everything from respiratory health, um, cardiovascular health, hmm. and then also, of course, neuropsychiatric conditions which is really fascinating so it may not just be gut uh, as well hmm. that's impacting the um as i said acceleration and or prevention of onset of <laughs> some yeah. of those conditions yeah well this is the exciting part mm -hmm. about being in this work right because yes. every day every something day new something is happening 100 percent. yes while we're sitting here i'm sure like one of my stats is outdated <laughs> <laughs> um okay so as it pertains to the development of a healthy microbiome, when does the microbiome actually get seeded? Do we know? Oh, this is a wild controversy in science. Yeah. Um, I would say until a few years ago, most scientists would say something like the womb is sterile and you are first seeded with microbes at birth. And seeding is simply, which is where our name comes from as a company, seeding is the process by which, um, biological process by which an infant is first exposed to microbes. So important to note that the seeding definition does not say at birth, although that used to be the like way most scientists or clinicians would answer the question. What we're now understanding is that there may be some shaping that happens. What we don't, we don't entirely know about microbes in the womb, but we do know that the metabolites are crossing from like from an amniotic perspective are coming from or into the fluid and we and we don't know and what a lot of people are starting to look at is how that is actually starting to shape the infant's microbiome even prior to birth and so uh, uh, there are a few things that are like correlative that have been kind of like established there's really interesting early research around the role of the mother's nutrition and the development of the child's microbiome, hmm. regardless of environment and other things that happen. So like what the mother ate and their microbiome, and then the relationship between the development of and what you start to see at even as late as like 18 months in terms of like BMI and obesity profiles from the nutrition of the mother. And that they hmm. believe that that's coming from, um, from a microbiome perspective, like informing both between the metabolic exchange that happens uh, or the metabolite exchange that happens um, prenatally, it impacts nutritional profile breast milk, but it also imp impacts the early seeding because of course the mother's microbiome and the metabolites that are coming from that are a part of that seeding process. And then of course, having an impact on what that child's microbial signature looks like after. And then of course you can get, there's like nuance like post, post birth, which is when I don't think anyone's disputed that the mother load, so to speak, comes at birth. Mm -hmm. And, and that's of actual microbes. And that in a vaginal birth is being seeded by vaginal microbes, fecal microbes, 
and then the mother's skin microbes. Those are like the first three like real exposures. And then of course, wherever the environment where the infant's born, but those are probably like the first three constituents. In, the, in a C-section birth, you'll see the, the early microbial signature of a baby look more like the skin. And that's just simply because they're not passing through the vaginal canal and they're not exposed to any of the fecal microbes, which you know, whether or not you poop during birth, there's still microbes that are <laughs> translocating in, in yeah. that general area, which a lot of people and my, my co-founders kind of talked about this before. There's some belief that there might have been like an evolutionary reason for that, hmm. which is kind of interesting, yeah. especially when you look at a lot of animal species that eat their mother's poop um, or where the poop is a part of early diet um, and or early like more uh, conscious exposure. Um, in like certain mammals and actually even in like some insects and stuff, which is kind of interesting. So even like baby koalas eat their mom's poop as like a primary nutritional source. It's called PAP, mm. which is kind of really kind of interesting. So wow. just to show you evolutionarily, like there's a lot of rationale for the proximity. <laughs> yeah. And in C-section birth is, um, swabbing becoming more common practice yeah. and what would you say about that? It's a great question. You know, Gloria Domingos Bello uh, who's an incredible scientist. Um, at, she's now at Rutgers. She was at NYU for a really long time. She's out of New York, now New Jersey. Um, she she is probably the like foremost scientist in the, in the swabbing world. Um, she's had a lot of regulatory pushback on swabbing. Really? Yep. Really fascinating. Yeah, the FDA doesn't love it. I can't really understand the, the susceptibility to infection. I'm like, look, five minutes before it was going to come out and see it and be exposed to it anyway. I'm like, I don't really see the difference, but you know, but, but there's been a lot, there's been some pushback on it. Um, just feeling like there, you don't really know whether there's, there could be some infection partially from the hypothesis that if it did, the baby didn't come out vaginally, perhaps that was also, there's a reason that there might be something microbially that's going on that you wouldn't want to necessarily transfer. But for the most part, I think, I, I mean, I also just know a lot of doulas and midwives who just kind of do it yeah. <laughs> anyway. Um, but there is, there's early research to suggest honestly good and some, I would say not like questionable, just things that need like further research as to whether or not that would become standard. But I do think the C-section versus vaginal does get a little bit conflated because or, or contrived because there are other factors that go into, you know, some people are like, oh, a C-section, like I'm fucked <laughs> for life. <laughs> and I'm like, well, it's not exactly like that because what they do see, um, and I think, I think Rob Knight talks about this in his TED talk or, or has, has, um, published about this. He's a really well-known microbiome scientist from UCSD, which is, you know, in the presence of breastfeeding and in the absence of antibiotics in the first 18 months, so being breastfed, but no courses of antibiotics, you do start to see a convergence hmm. of the microbiomes, depending on, you know, environmental, there's other environmental factors and other things that kind of go into In that. But versus yeah. 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 So, you know, so I think that there are, to our point that we've made a few times while we've been talking, like some areas of um, where the malleability of the microbiome really serves you in those early months, that those formative months where like the blueprint is forming because there are choices you can make there. Um, being very cognizant that breastfeeding isn't an option for all mothers, um, both environmentally as well as nutritionally, um, that that can, you know, impact whether or not, um, you know, you kind of can start on that kind of towards a steady state microbiome from like a, a place that's kind of on par with a more traditional vaginal birth. Mm -hmm. And maybe talk about the breast milk a little bit mm -hmm. because 
as I understand it, there's a significant component of it that's yes. actually not digestible. Yeah. Um, yeah. He, HMOs, um, not to be confused with like horrible places to try and get submit your medical bills, yeah. um, are human milk oligosaccharides. Um, and those, about a third of the carbohydrates in breast milk are not digestible by the human part of the baby. They're really just a substrate, kind of like the fertilizer um, for... Um, for microbes to uh, to flourish and to grow, mm. um, and so there's a beautiful evolutionary story between if you think uh, between breast milk and and babies because everything from the microbes that evolved to live on the nipple, which is crazy, microbes that are in or the way that the saliva in a baby's mouth there's like bi-directional microbial activity between mm. the baby's mouth and the nipple mm. that you can't see, which is incredible. Some of which, for example, were selected because they're microbes that are um, good for helping the baby digest lactose, as an example, just to show you like how evolution is like insane. Um, and so, uh, and so, of course, that's that's like an, a first interaction. And then, of course, the uh, bacterial. There's microbes in breast milk, so there's a microbial, there's a breast milk microbiome, mm -hmm. um, and then there's the nutritional profile uh, that includes those like the sugars, the, the HMOs that I just described. Um, and those are very much, in fact, now the where a lot of science is going is looking at how you could synthesize many of those microbes to include in formula so that babies who have to have formula, you can add certain microbes. And you could also be adding as much of the full spectrum of HMOs that are present in breast milk as possible to the formula so that you can start to replicate and get as close as possible to some of the really important exchanges that are happening during that window where the microbiome is developing and where breast milk can be such an important accelerant of that, of the health, of a healthy development. Hmm. And are there ways, essentially, if you're not able to breastfeed and um, are, are there kind of pediatric uh, microbiome mm -hmm. supplements or products? There, the um, I mean, it's er it's early um, in the field. There, there are. It's just early in the field, so yeah. There are um, certain. A lot of formulas now include certain probiotics, and they'll and they'll say in, and and certain HMOs. I mean, there's definitely. A lot of formulas, particularly the number of the number of the ones that are maybe a little bit more scientifically or evidence based that come out of Europe, um, that absolutely are looking at the nutritional profile of breast milk as it relates to so looking at things like omega three, you know, looking at certain compounds as it relates to healthy nourishment in the microbiome. They're looking at which microbes they could use to supplement into so probiotics that are in the formula and then they're looking at as i said just like how they could synthesize and replicate there's a there's a huge spectrum of hmos that are in breast milk and so a lot of them you'll start to see on marketing like on the outside of cartons like 24 hmos or 16 h which is like the new <laughs> way of yeah. looking at formula but but i would say a lot of that research is a little bit early but that is a really promising part of the field for sure um in terms of formulas that will start to get closer to or will be developed actually from the dimension of not just like the human nutritional profile needs, but actually from like the incredibly important like microbiome needs during that window of development. And I think we're doing a lot of really interesting work in that area. Um, and you're going to start to see like a, it's going to, I mean, it'll just be common stake, commonplace and table stakes that every formula will have probiotics and probably some aspect of HMOs. Hmm. 
So humans aren't the only beings mm -hmm. that have microbiome, right? Correct. And Almost all living organisms have a microbiome. And uh, I know that you guys are doing specific work as it relates to honeybees, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. Yes. And coral reefs. And coral reefs. Mm -hmm. um, what happens, I guess, first if if we don't have any honeybees? Because what I've read recently is that at oh, least in, yeah, at least in America, <laughs> yeah. I think we're down to like eighty nine percent. And I've seen a whole bunch of statistics yeah. that seem alarming. Um, uh, and yeah, without pollinators. Mm -hmm. Like I think something like eighty percent of the crops. Uh, of the crops just mm. disappear. So we'll well, we and can't. and animal species too, right? Because the the ecosystems, the, yeah, yeah. Mm. So what are the primary uh, causes for mm. this uh, diminishing population of honeybees? I mean, there's a number. There's a number of causes. I mean, the the one that we look at the most. Well, we look at two kind of two areas. Um, honeybee. Uh, sorry, um, colony collapse disorder mm. and um, an American fulbrood disease, which is actually interesting, lesser known, but um, important because it's really where the larvae die. Mm. Um, and so we're like, and you just see like huge amounts of die off. And look, a lot of it is like not probably won't surprise you just based on like <laughs> things like, I mean, it, our work primarily looks at pesticide use particularly the neonicotinide pesticides, which is what we focus on because um, implied in their name, they have nicotine. Yeah. Um, you can see in certain studies like bees that will literally not go to nectar and they will go to the pesticide um, first because of mm -hmm. how addictive it is. Um, and so it's incredible, you know, it's, you just think about, first of all, how, how sick, how sick someone was like once sitting in a lab somewhere and they're like, I got, I yeah, got it. The bliss point for I got bees. it. It's going to be Marlboro, Marlboro for, yeah. Mar Marlboro for, uh, for honeybees. Um, and so I think, you know, I think that it has to do a lot with, um, that a lot of our work has to do more with like the pesticide use just because of the direct impact it has on the gut microbiome of the honeybees and then how it impacts their immune resistance. Um, and so it brings their immune systems like way down, un unable to, um, you know, effectively, uh, you know, fire the right responses um, and have any kind of, and also impacts just like antibiotics and all, all these yeah. other antimicrobials has a huge impact on dysbiosis. And then of course they die, they die off. And so we created this bio patty and it can be administered as a spray now too of very specific microbes that actually increase the immune um, tolerance of, of bees against these, um, pesticides. Hmm. So not a perfect sustainable solution. It doesn't change the systemic issue, um, but certainly allows them to be, you know, sustain themselves, which I think is something that, uh, you know, a lot of people working in climate change, you know, like we were talking about short-term versus long-term thinking, you know, sometimes you do need to implement some of these shorter term solutions so that you can buy the time <laughs> to get to the, right more systemic and longer term solutions. So these are like literally like look like they look like pancakes. They look like pancakes. <laughs> they actually look like pancakes. I can send you a picture of one. They literally look like they're literally made. One of the things we have found, you know, in what we do, and you probably see this a lot in like any anything you see in health or wellness is that, you know, human behavior is such a big part of it, whether or not some of these things are effective. So we didn't come up with the idea of putting a pancake <laughs> in the hive. Yeah. You just have to ask beekeepers and the people who own these farms and who obviously can be the administrators of like, 
what would be the easiest way <laughs> for you to administer something? Um, and they already, that is already how they feed a lot of hives. And so, um, and so we just, we, we first demonstrated in, in the patties and then we made it even easier, which is literally just go around the hives and spray it. So I'm going to ask a really dumb question. Sure. So wouldn't the farmers that apply the pesticides mm -hmm. need pollinators? So why are they <laughs> well, killing off their bees? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a great question. I mean, <laughs> that's, a, that's a really good question. Um, a lot of these, I mean, first of all, a lot of these bees are not bees that are being used uh, necessarily look for the for the farms. Yeah. Um, so that's the first okay. that's the first piece. Um, and a lot of that a lot of those pe pesticides are not being used to kill bees. They're being used to kill all the other um, animals and they're, so they're not like actually like trying to kill bees as much as the exposure in all of these ecosystems is what's killing them if that yeah. makes sense. Yeah. And do you concentrate any of your work on, for example, uh, glyphosate gets talked about, yes, yeah. about a lot, mm -hmm. but on chemical herbicides that are essentially uh, chelating essential minerals in the soil and contributing mm -hmm. to soil degradation and yep. erosion and et cetera. Um, our work in soil is more, well, there's, a, there's a couple areas that are, that are, um, our work in soil will be will be looking a bit more at although it's related, but um, for us, how you can use microbes to increase nutrient density of food. Mm, yeah. um, so even I guess the it kind of what I was saying in the short term versus long term, which is what are the microbes that could be administered to create the conditions despite dysbiosis of the soil <laughs> mm -hmm. um, to to improve nutrient density um, of food, which is of course a huge problem. Um, that's just our work. I, I, there's a very, very interesting work happening across soil microbiome everywhere, but that just happens to be one of our areas of focus. And then the second, which is not the key, you know, the key, not, not the, the, um, the way that you describe soil, but if you, if you took the same sentence and said the things we're exposed to, uh, at, in our homes or the built environment, that is a big area that's coming up in our work, which is starting to look at the compounds, including the ones that are quote unquote natural. And what they do to compromise our skin microbiome, our gut microbiome, um, what it means to be wearing clothes all day that with very specific surfactants that, and chemicals that were used to clean them, um, and what that's meaning for our health, um, and what are the new materials and compounds that will be far more nurturing um, to and starting to think about surfactants and the compounds that we li more live with mm. um as uh as a part of our um you know kind of proactive aspects of health mm. you know those are more like compounds that are in kind of daily cleaning products and mm -hmm. etc yeah, yeah absolutely which which yeah. there's incredible research that's coming out as well as that has already come out on the impact, I mean, for like, I mean, <laughs> there, there was a, there was a paper, I think two, three years ago, just on like the correlation between childhood obesity and home cleaning products, mm. just to understand like how, you know, I mean, look, you're in such close proximity and, you know, you're already in the built environment, which means you're already in a more, um, a, a microbially, despite what people think of the New York city subway, uh, <laughs> mm -hmm. you, it's, it is not as microbial, microbially diverse. Um, and you're already not exposed to the endotoxins that like all Amish children who have no allergies are. You're not exposed to so many things that, you know, we used to be. 
Um, but more importantly, you're not only not exposed to those things, but you're now exposed to so many chemicals and compounds that are disrupting to everything from your skin barrier to your gut barrier to all these things that, of course, um, even again, as I said, even the, some of the more natural ones that we're kind of just starting to understand the impact on our health from. Hmm. And I suppose that plays into this hygiene hypothesis. Yeah. And the right. missing microbes hypothesis, which is kind of a part of that, which is like hygiene is hygiene hypothesis is essentially this notion that we've over sanitized ourselves to sickness. Yeah. Um, and then just to be like, as to, it's kind of reductive. And then missing microbes is this notion that because of that, and on top of the overuse of antibiotics, and on top of living in the built environment, and on top of the decline of our both nutrient density and then just quality of diet, you know, everything from just the misproportion ratio of omega sixes to <laughs> omega threes and, you know, the, the, the lack of fiber. Um, we missing microbes is a little bit more akin to this idea of, um, which is off of hygiene hypothesis, but a little bit broader, um, that the rise of all of these non-communicable diseases and autoimmune conditions is a result of basically what, what I would refer to as the climate change of our insides, mm. which is, you know, if you think we've lost, you think it's terrifying that we've lost 50, 60, 70% of the North American bird species. <laughs> Wait till you see how many species we've lost in here. Yeah. Um, and how that, you know, our bodies are, are analogs for, for what's happening out in nature and the environment. And that missing microbes posits that the decline of speciation um, and not just diversity, but the richness profile. So how much and how, how abundant and how many different types um, is really highly correlated with the rise of all of these misfirings mm -hmm. um, like asthma, autoimmune conditions, allergies, um, because we're just simply like, I mean, there's just, there's no training, you know, there's no proper training ground, if that makes sense for yeah. what we're talking about for early development. Yeah. I know that you're leery to, of, of lopping spiritual ideals mm -hmm. on top of yeah. some of the more m metaphorical yes. grounds of, of <laughs> Uh, around the microbiome, but is there a spiritual component to your work? I mean, I'm not leery. I, what I'm leery of is when people make leaps scientifically to justify a spiritual idea that they are tied to and that mm. they have a confirmation bias for. Got it. So I think we've seen that in no better way played out than in the last couple of years. I think I'm a very spiritual person and I think science is a beautifully incredible and i think the microbiome is an even more i think greater expression of um if you define spiritual as um the going inwards or the knowing of oneself which i think mm. is kind of one of the definitions um i mean the entire forget industry and forget people's feelings about big pharma and you know when it gets commercialized but i think as a discipline and i think you can look back in history to see how even astrology and astronomy were kind of reconciled <laughs> at the same time and how medicine and, you know, all these people were not, they were, they were not dividing themselves the way we are divided today. And I think, so. and by the way, some of the greatest artists were the greatest scientists and scientists, greatest artists. And so, and in so many ways, I see them as very, um, I see my work now as like more spiritual <laughs> than anything else. And so I think science, you know, it's, it's a discipline of inquiry which yeah. is actually in some ways less biased than like religion and less biased than saying I am this or I am that. It just says that I'm committed to 
asking questions and wanting to know more, which I think is like a, a beautiful. And then I think the microbiome, I mean, in Star Wars, uh, <laughs> of course, if the, the midichlorian, uh, a lot of people think that that's, those, those might be microbes or uh, that George Lucas was kind of prophetic in some ways about, you know, what microbes could be doing. But, you know, I think if the microbiome is a, a good teacher in anything, it's that you could be looking in the wrong place for a really long time and basing your entire worldview and truth on it um, just because you simply didn't have a way to see it. Um, yeah. And so I think we see that in everything we do. What I am leery of is the, the it, it is kind of what I said. I think we talked about this a little bit on our first podcast, which is the, um, it, it's the, it's the hypocrisy of confirmation bias from the very same people or, or, or disciplines that are grounded in this notion of open-mindedness and being and seeing everything while also being an, very anti yeah. things that they both fundamentally don't really actually take the time to understand sometimes, but just because it doesn't fit within the way the world has said you could be Buddhist and believe in vaccines, <laughs> right? Yeah. Like, or the way that people like tie these dots together inextricably in a discipline where you're concurrently talking about how open-minded and how the world needs to be one and all of these things and not realizing the hypocrisy of that. And that that's actually what I have more contestation with, which is uh, that that's those are the things that actually like drive me crazy more. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, I suppose um, on some level, science like religion is a form of prophecy, mm -hmm. you know, and maybe a more reliable form yeah, well, ex except that I would say that it, you know, pr religion has texts that I think are a bit more deified and less malleable and agile Absolutely. and weren't, weren't written to have iOS updates like every day. Absolutely. Um, whereas right. I think religion has a bit more of like a fixed um, sense of the, sense of the world that yeah. you either adhere to. There's or no you... final word of science yes. Yes. the way that there is a final yes. word of God and exactly. then another one. Yes, <laughs> you know, exactly. Whatever. Or, and, and, or your interpretations of it. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And, um, I mean, I've found that, uh, as a spiritual seeker that, um, many of the mysteries of the metaphysical mm -hmm. are actually patterned in the physical. Mm -hmm. So if you're really curious about trying to excavate some foundational cosmic intelligence, mm -hmm. then look into the physical systems because that's where yes. that intelligence is mm -hmm. patterned. Yes. And the more that you begin to understand about things like mechanism, the more consilience that you find across Absolutely. soil and gut. Mm -hmm. And yeah, you can be you can use overuse that poetically mm -hmm. from time to time. Yep. But it is um, constantly fascinating to me yes. when I, you know, discover, uh, you know, a, a hormone in the body that has its an exact counterpart mm -hmm. or this consistent sort of yin yang that continues yes. to arise, this sort of um, coincidentia positorum or whatever, um, that... Uh, that, you know, we can learn a lot about, maybe not about why we're here, mm -hmm. but about how we're here. Yeah, absolutely. And um, and that's a fascinating piece yes. of science. And, and 
I think the, the the most interesting thinkers, I think, try to like, it's kind of like when I talk to people who make a lot of big life decisions through astrology, hmm. you know, my, my, my question about it, you know, I'm not a synastric person. Um, but I also recognize how important pattern recognition is to people making meaning for themselves. Mm. It's not how I necessarily do it, meaning it's not the how that I do it. But I also, I think where I start, where I, where my skepticism creeps in sometimes, and look, I, I think we make meaning in all different kinds of ways. Um, and by the way, there are scientists that are deeply religious and there's, and we're all full of our own conflict um, and conflicting ideas. I think what I have had challenges with is more the lack of curiosity and the openness and the ability to recognize that by like, for example, if you say to an astrologer, you're a pattern recognizer, <laughs> right? <laughs> that there's a lot of like, it's like an insult, right? right. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's where I get um, hung up, which is that there's this, there's this inability to kind of zoom out on, um, and look look down and say, why am I making meaning this way? Why did I choose this way of making meaning? What, what about this methodology? Also, this methodology is based on another methodology called astronomy. Do I know anything about astronomy? Do I know what a moon is? Do I know what a, can the moon actually rise? Can the things I'm being told even happen astronomically? And a lot of times the answer is no. And so what it, where I get caught up is this kind of like wall that I've decided that astrology is this. I've decided that a Pisces yeah. is this, I've, but with no further mm. like inquiry. Right. And, and both self-inquiry as well as what is this based on? Like what am I, I'm making like big life. I'm just using astrology as an example. Sure. Hope I didn't just create like 25,000 enemies. <laughs> I just mean it. I just, it just, it's with, it's with anything, right? Yeah. And I, I think even with science, like, you know, you see this in a lot of ways where like science just going back to the beginning of our conversation and where bacteria has been like otherized. It's like, and you see this from the last few years where all of a sudden science is big pharma and science is biotech and science is this and therefore it's bad. Mm -hmm. And therefore the people who are working on these things are bad and the people who do this are bad because I know, and this is how pseudoscience works and how Trump did this incredibly effectively, I know a secret that nobody else knows and I am the underdog for knowing it. And my value and my framework and my affirmation of the way I'm going to make choices can be reinforced by the fact that I so deeply know that I'm right. And the way and that this thing that's being told to all these people is wrong. Yeah. And I think, which may be true in some cases, like in some cases might be true. Um, it might be it might also be the the, the um, symptom of really poor communication styles and skills. It might be a million things, but what I really what science is, as I said, is a methodology for inquiry. Yeah. And what I what I really have problems with is that a lot of the ways a lot of spiritual things manifest is that it manifests with a level one question, <laughs> maybe level two, and then once you've like found your person, guru, answer framework. It's like, now you know the answers. And there's like a, I find that, that and, and even, even from people saying, I'm still, I'm a seeker, I'm this. And so I'm not saying everybody, but it, I, mm -hmm. it is something that I have found and then have had found challenging in speaking to people, then trying to bring up a conversation where 
they're just so sure. When I'm not like, I'm like, how nobody's sure. Yeah. Um, and I think that I find that to be the same otherization <laughs> that we've been victim to for forever. Yeah. I think, you know, where I draw a distinction is for me between many of the Eastern traditions. Mm-hmm. So um, Taoism that was very concerned with the study of nature. Yes. Now, not nature with microscopes the way we have it. True but certainly the course of nature mm-hmm. and attributing much of the fundamental intelligence of the world to the mm-hmm. way nature works. Mm-hmm. And, um, or Buddhism, um, which really saw uh, the world as mutually interdependent mm-hmm. or have these concepts of dependent origination, mm-hmm. for example, yeah. where everything is dependent on everything else. And there's mm-hmm. a beautiful image of Indra's Without net. attachment. Without attachment, yeah. <laughs> and I can't help but build that bridge between, you know, that image of Indra's net, you know, the Buddhist mm-hmm. image of this yep. web that goes on forever with a diamond in each juncture mm-hmm. that, re- that reflects every other diamond. Mm-hmm. I can't help but to build that bridge between those ideas and then when I discover like, oh, my God, I've co-evolved yes. over billions of years Absolutely. with these bacteria mm-hmm. in my gut and you know, that there's this kind of co-tenancy situation mm-hmm. and I am, there is a, there is a mutual interdependence. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it perhaps that, um, you know, Gautama was more of a psychologist mm-hmm. than he was a, a theologist or, or, a, um, but, uh, I know that that's dangerous to make those conflations, mm-hmm. but they seem I I, yeah. I think they're absolutely I mean you know I think that they're I I don't think it's dangerous I think it's I, I as I said I think it's when there's a finality to it um and then a belief that that's how it is and that you just know that's how it is because yeah. I think what these things show you is like like the diamonds reflecting each other like this is we're going to continue to know more and yeah. more and more um I think that whatever ways you can i mean actually think the connectivity and conflation is really much needed in the world actually because i think in some ways we've really siloed all of these areas um in ways that really don't serve us um and i think that that siloing and the lack of ability to make connection amongst these ideas is actually what has reinforced the division mm. and therefore reinforce and also and and really reinforced that like staunch belief that it's like this way or this way mm-hmm. even from the the disciplines that say it shouldn't be that way and so i think in a lot of ways i think the more you can i don't think what you're doing is making astrology out of micro you know out of microbiome <laughs> yeah. i think in a lot of ways it there's a, there's a beautiful practice of you know metaphors are like more some of the most powerful devices for change right like and i think where people can start to understand a, just the actual connectivity between all these things. The idea that 10 years ago, we couldn't have even had this podcast. <laughs> so, right. you know, that, and, and, and 50 years before that, you couldn't have talked about certain other things, you know? And, and so I think the embracing of like ideas that evolve and change and that deepen our sense of like knowing ourselves and knowing the world and actually finding ways to like connect these different ideas more it's why we at Seed, like it's why we work with so many artists and poets hmm. all yeah. the time is because you need to, you need to shift perspective. You know, that's where change is going to come from. Um, I mean, I always wonder like, 
you know, what would have happened in the last couple of years if like, we just, I mean, <laughs> if there were, there, it was a, mu- you know, it was like COVID the musical. <laughs> like, <laughs> I just, I just wonder what are, you know, you have to think about the mediums and, the, you know, Marshall McLuhan always talks about the, you know, the, me- the medium is the message. And so I think the really big problem is just the fact that we've really had, we have really ingrained ideas that whoever's delivering the message, we've conflated the who's delivering the message with the validity of the message. Right. Yeah. It's interesting because, you know, faith has long been the provenance Mm -hmm. of religion and fact has been the provenance of, or the province of, of science. And um, and you can see that division play itself forward, even in our own culture, where there are a lot of people that are holding on to faith because they either don't understand the mm-hmm. substrate uh, of the situation mm-hmm. um, or it, it's or there's someone that claims that they do mm-hmm. and it's easier just to put their faith into that yes. demagogue autocrat etc um and uh um but then you have you know the other side which is okay well we've now invested all of our belief in science or in humanism or you know we're right. going to instill mm-hmm. the world with reason mm-hmm. and uh of course that's where i generally lean <laughs> a yeah, little yeah, bit more true. but but as a spiritual seeker um you know i don't i'm not sure that life is completely empirical mm-hmm. um or could be understood completely empirically right. yep. so you know and this is why metaphor as mm-hmm. heuristics can yes. be really really helpful absolutely and i think seed for example, does such an incredible mm-hmm. job with that because, as I think I've told you before, when mm-hmm. I open your website, mm-hmm. I basically think I'm on the MoMA website <laughs> or something. <laughs> I don't, um, mm-hmm. I don't uh, associate it, um, you know, with a microbiome company. But I, I know you guys are way m- more than that. Your, your vision is so expansive. But it, I think that the more that we can have some of these kind of conversations mm-hmm. about science in a way that feels very poetic mm-hmm. and has metaphor. Absolutely. I think that the more that we'll be able to communicate it to a wider and audience and the more that we'll absolutely. be able to understand our, each other. And and by the way, like scientists want that too. I mean, yeah. we, we often do things with their science and then they'll say, oh my God, like I never knew it could look like that. Or, be, you know, there, there's, there's, um, look, it's it's kind of like nutrition is not taught in medical school, right? It's it's you know it's only now actually actually Alan Alda um, created a beautiful program at Stony Brook mm. um, about the the community. He was he's on that '70s show that I forget the name of it. That was oh man, um, no 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 for PBS. He, oh for he, PBS, he would like say. communicate really hard like complex scientific ideas, yeah. and he loves science Great. communication. Um, I think actually his book on on this opens with the George Bernard Shaw quote that says, you know, the the um, uh, the greatest illusion of of communication is the you know perception that it's like occurred. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I I think I made that paraphrase it a little, but it's just this notion that like you know he Alan Alda has thought a lot about science communication. He's and he established this beautiful program for science communication at Stony Brook. Mm. And now what you're starting to see in PhD programs and even in other graduate programs and even undergrad 
is starting to teach about science communication because there's another beautiful quote <laughs> that, that we love at Seed that we think about all the time, which is this notion that um, science isn't finished until it's communicated. And I think we, I really deeply believe that. Um, and I think that, you know, communication and I think what you see in some of these other disciplines and areas, particularly more spiritual and religious realms, is that the language and the medium and the aesthetic is beautiful. It's appealing to the human senses. It's um, delivered in ways that resonate deeply spiritually cognitively, intellectually, mm -hmm. emotionally. Um, but of course, the way science is delivered is, oh, sixth grade bio, bio is so boring and I've never learned anything in science ever since then because my teacher was boring and mm -hmm. the textbooks were awful. And, but you think about like the way, where you get to, I mean, look where, <laughs> look where we, where I could do, where, where you, what you created here with like, I could do yoga, I'm sitting in nature. Like there's really no reason why, why, why isn't this a PhD program? Why isn't, you know, there's, there, we don't have, there's not beautiful architecture to communicate. You know, you go to a church, it's like you experience the aesthetic of some of these things and it's like transportive. And I'm a New York Jew and you walk into like <laughs> a beautiful church in like Rome and you're just like, how could I not be transported here? I mean, these are beautiful and aesthetic. So I think aesthetic language, the lexicon, and the um, the, the 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 messenger are all the things that so many disciplines got right um, and understood how to touch people in ways that you know science just ended up becoming very medical, very clinical, very complex, very industrialized. Yeah. Um, and I think as a result of that, we are where we are. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll. I'll finish with this idea. Mm -hmm. I'm sure you guys have already have it had it because you're always way ahead of it. Nice. But I don't know if you've been going to some of the immersive art exhibits, mm -hmm. like yes. the Van Gogh exhibit or the Klimt exhibit, or yes. there's a Frida Kahlo exhibit, and then there's mm -hmm. some spinoffs, mm -hmm. some of which are more are better executed yes. than others. Yeah. But oh my God, the seed exhibit, yeah. the immersive oh, yeah. microbiome geodome experience. Yes. You go all we are on it. it. We are on it. We are, in fact, in talks with the people who made the Van Gogh experience. I'm sure. Experience. That yeah. would just be, yeah. I'd be the first, I'd be front first of the line. I'm <laughs> front of the line You can have right the here. first ticket. Yes. Um, <laughs> it is something that we, we've been thinking, you know, COVID was an interesting, obviously we had to really think about ourselves in pixels, um, which was hard, but obviously led to some really, a lot of creativity. Um, but now that um, there's some... IRL yeah. <laughs> happening, uh, we've been thinking a lot about how this could show up in the world. So cool. yeah, I, I agree with you. Yeah, and yeah. I hope, and we think that it would feel quite spiritual as an experience. I mean, the rain room is a beautiful example of like collective experience of something right. that, you know, is, and there's so many examples of them now. Um, but, uh, but yes, those things are, those, they're transportive and they, and they give you a new medium to talk about things that, I could see it, the you know. seed microbiome geodome yes. at Lollapalooza. <laughs> 100%, yes. We are very much headed there. Yeah. Yes. All right. Just give us some All right, cats. Now you. I have to say it that way. Oh, no. All right. Thank you so much. Thank I you. just so enjoy conversing with you. There's Likewise. almost nothing I'd rather do. Oh, thank you. Me too. <laughs> no, I love talking to you and thank you for having me. Um, and I'm glad that my water didn't break while we were. <laughs> I was kind of hoping <laughs> so, to stretch it I out know, a little longer so just better. for the, the effect. Better.
it would be better. All right, to be continued. To be continued. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Ara Katz. To keep abreast of Ara's work, check out seed.com and be sure to pick up her new book titled A Kid's Book About Your Microbiome. If you enjoy this show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. That would make my mom proud. And if you're a regular listener, you know how much effort is put into the creation of this show. And we really do our best to keep sponsors to a minimum. This is not one of those shows where I prattle on for the first 15 minutes on ads. So if you're looking for a way to support our efforts, the best way is to subscribe to Commune. You'll access more than 100 courses featuring the world's top authors and thought leaders. You can check it out for 14 days for free at onecommune.com trial. And of course, I am available at any time at jeffk at onecommune.com. I read every email that comes in. Also, I'd like to thank the folks that make this show possible, including Jacob Lau, Megan Stone, Ruby Foster, Emma Fretz, Silvana Alcala, and Ryan Tillotson. That's all from the Commune for this week. My name is Jeff Krasnow, and I am here for you.